0: Welcome to the Create Something Awesome Today podcast, where it's all about educating and motivating creative pros and entrepreneurs from around the world with simple and easy to implement ideas. And of course, helping you create something awesome today. And now, welcome your host. He is the founder of Founder of Awesome Creator Academy, a YouTube educator, and the biggest Star Wars nerd you'll ever meet, Roberto Blake. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Create Something Awesome Today podcast. This is your host, Roberto Blake, helping you create something awesome today. Welcome back. Uh, Today's show is actually going to be about something that I think is extremely important for content creators everywhere. We're going to be talking about passive income and how you can build your very own passive income engine. Now, what am I talking about when I mean passive income? It's like Roberto... What's up with this? Is this a scam? Is this like, hey, what about the hard work, man? What about the hustle? It's like, well, here's the thing. Passive income is a misnomer and a lot of people don't understand what it is we're talking about. And the best way I can relate it to people is to call it automated income, which I think is a more accurate and honest way to describe what we're talking about because although it's been cute and clever for a lot of people, even a lot of entrepreneurs to say, Passive income doesn't exist. There's no such thing as passive income. Passive income isn't real. They always say that, right? And I understand also why people embrace that narrative. Here's the funny thing about that: almost every single prominent person, whether they're in the entrepreneurship community or whether they're, um, you know, in holding people accountable, everyone who says that passive income isn't real or doesn't exist that has a following, is making passive income. That's the that's the irony. That's the irony. Um, it's not lost on me at all, that almost everyone who says that is actually making passive income. So when you think about that, what are we talking about here? Passive income is real and exists partly because the IRS says it does. So for those of you who don't know, the IRS uh, does say that passive income exists. So why is it that you have um, entrepreneurs Uh, finance YouTubers, you know, people in the anti-scam community, why do they say passive income doesn't exist, right? They are trying with the best of intentions to tell people that at some point you have to do work and you have to create value. But passive income is not about you just making money doing nothing ever. It's about whether or not you are still profiting from work you already did now without a high-level of active participation or maintenance costs directly from your own physical labor and effort after the fact. And so the way that the government thinks about uh, passive income, and this will be important for a lot of you who are content creators, is one aspect of passive income is what's called royalty income. Royalty income is something YouTubers recently had to learn that phrase because uh, YouTube made an announcement, um, I think it was maybe two years ago, that your YouTube income as reported to the government will count as royalty income and be taxed as royalty income. So with with YouTube revenue being taxed as royalty income, which we know is a form of passive income the same way that uh, book rights film rights and music rights and music streaming is kind of his royalty income. That's truly, truly passive income as defined by the government, right? So we can't say passive income doesn't exist when the government has a definition for how they tax it, right? It's the same thing I tell people about how, okay, you can't say that YouTube isn't a real job when the government taxes it like one. You can't say YouTube's not a real job when the government taxes it like one. And you can't say YouTube isn't legit when the government taxes it as though it is, okay? Um, And so with YouTube, in America at least, you're taxed at the ordinary income rate. The royalty situation applies to if you're a U.S. citizen residing outside the U.S., like if you're an expat or something like that. Uh, So say that you're living abroad well, then your taxes are done accordingly based on that. And it may depend on whether your country has a treaty with the United States with regard to whether you get double taxed on that. Um, and then if you don't make that clarification and declaration and you don't have that in your uh, paperwork for your YouTube uh, payments, then you get taxed up to 25% of your total earnings without regard for whether it was U.S. earnings or not. Uh, with the regard to the declaration, you're just taxed at the – Appropriate rate, regardless of treaties, on the income that came from the U.S. viewing audience. So that's like that's a whole thing. You can read that in YouTube's monetization policy and terms of service with regard to the tax stuff. I'll also probably on my main channel at some point have a video coming out again. I do one every year about uh, YouTube taxes and what creators need to know. So that becomes something that we really want to think about when it comes to passive income. So there's two really important main points I want to go here. Passive income is real, and nobody can tell you there's no such thing as passive income when the government is taxing you based on the idea that passive income does exist. Now, traditionally, when people think of passive income streams, they usually think of capital gains, dividend income, interest income from bonds, and uh, real estate and or rental incomes. They also usually think about incomes that come from land rights and mineral rights. They also think of it as income that comes from royalties Uh, on intellectual property, as well as patents, okay? So that's traditionally what passive income has become. The passive nature of automated income, which I really think of passive income as, automated income, comes down to the fact that automation is real. You know that automation is replacing people's jobs and that automation is creating the same value that a human being can create in a transaction without a human being being present. Uh, The most common form a lot of you are seeing of this is um the uh self-checkout replacing cashiers digital kiosk that would normally be a person that would be taking your order there's automation that's happening uh, with regard to 3d printing and manufacturing for physical goods and products there are automated systems right now that are managing my online digital presence there's automations that um will send out scheduled tweets for me, scheduled posts to my YouTube community tabs. There's automations that I can put in place even with scheduling of this podcast rather than having to manually set certain things up. There are all kinds of automations that are replacing what a human being can do. And what that means, ladies and gentlemen, is that while it may not be common, well, it may not be normal, a complete self-employed person using the technology of today, of using the technology of the 2020s, um could make multiple six figures without a single employee by leveraging automated tools and using open platforms and free software. So free software, free tools, free platforms, and affordable automations in in technology and marketing and um, even some of the deployment of your content creation, your intellectual property, the automated services that exist for processing your transactions, PayPal, Stripe, all of those things. That's all technology and automation that helps people scale their businesses. Shopify, print on demand, all the automation behind that, you are not doing the labor. Even if the labor is getting done by other people, other means, or a machine, you're not doing it, but yet you can profit from it, and you can profit from it long after your role in that, pipeline, your production, your labor. After your labor is done, you can keep getting paid over and over and over again. That's passive at some point. That is automated away. You are automating away the way that you make income. And in things like uh, software as a service, you could have a software as a service that you're not managing. You could have automations, cron jobs, servers, things that are quite literally Basically, printing money for you, and it could be recurring monthly income with no physical maintenance cost on your part because the server just has to keep running. And the financial cost of that is coming out of profits. And if you just automate the payments to keep the server hosting running or whatever needs to happen, or even if you do have to pay physical labor to technicians and admins, if their payments are on autopay and they're billing and invoicing every month and it's automatically paid and the stuff is happening in the background, your active participation is completely unnecessary in the process that makes you money. That is literally passive income because of technology, because it's automating your job. I think that people who think um, you know passive income doesn't exist – are still just living in their mind as analog relics of the 20th century rather than the 21st and refusing to acknowledge the technology that has been right here in the palm of our hands for the last 15 years. And so that's that's why that's real. That's why passive income is real because automation is real. And you see automation displacing jobs or entire industries or entire lifestyles of work all the time. And largely because it's making things convenient faster, scalable, and more accurate for people. And you're gonna see more of it when it comes to online business. You're gonna see more of it when it comes to content creation. Once we do the work of designing our merchandise and stuff like that, uh, the process for sales, once you do that with Spreadshop or Shopify or whatever you wanna use, it's over. You're not involved anymore. The money is coming in, the value is going out. As well, what about the marketing? What about promotions? What about sales? Um, the content you make to promote your thing, once that's out there, you don't have to really work on it anymore. Do you, once you post a YouTube video, any income you're making as a result of posting that YouTube video, how active do you need to be in that process anymore? It's the algorithm taking over and people go, well, what if you stop making YouTube content? I've done that before. I've stopped making YouTube content for two months at a time or more before, and it takes three months in my case for me to even recognize or see a massive hit to my income in any way. And I'd still be comfortable after that, by the way. So for mega YouTubers, it's even better. They could probably go a year without posting, six months without posting and not notice the difference. They do have to post at least every six months to their channel or their community tab to stay in the partner program where YouTube will take all the money and still run ads. So there is that. So uh, have fun with that. So you but the thing is you could automate that you could automate it so that there's a post that happens in some way shape or fashion to either your community tab or a new video uploaded of some kind every six months and stay in the partner program you could you could work that out you can automate the hell out of all of this um you, you know so like there's a practical and reasonable methodology for like sustaining this kind of thing right So something something that I think about a lot when it comes to this kind of thing is just like the fact that the general person doesn't necessarily have an understanding of how this works and why this works and what would be realistic for them. You know, I didn't start making money in my sleep overnight either. Obviously, I worked hard. I hustled. I did my freelance stuff. I wasn't making that much off my YouTube videos in the early, early days of my uh, original channel. Um, I've had to hustle to get the podcast channel monetized with the help of the audience, especially the live viewing audience. Thank you, everybody, for that. But here's the thing about building a passive income engine. Let's say that just because you're making passive income, you're making money that pays you more than once, right? Because that's what we're really talking about. Passive income is you getting paid more than once. So after I make my YouTube videos, I keep getting paid from my YouTube content that I put out. As long as I'm in the YouTube partner program, I will keep making money off of those videos for as long as I'm in the partner program. OK, so that's one part of it. But the, my passive income doesn't start stop there. I have digital products. Digital products don't necessarily have a maintenance cost. Now, before anyone goes you know, yelling in the comments or whatever, my digital products right now are not digital courses. They're mostly template systems like the YouTube Starter Kit, the Brand Deal Starter Kit. Coming soon, we'll have the Podcast Starter Kit coming later in 2022, right? So, and then we'll have the Live Streamer Spark Starter Kit eventually. So, there's, there's these products that I have, right? I plan to open a digital template store called Creator Template Store, right? I already have the domain for it. These things will leverage graphic design assets made by me, my team, freelancers, whoever, And we'll be uh, selling those things. Those are digital products. So once the initial upfront labor is done, they have the ability to scale infinitely because digital inventory is infinite and the reach of the internet is theoretically has no upper limit. Um, And we have the ability to do online advertising that comes out of my profits so we can scale all those things with online advertising in addition to evergreen content, right? Right. So that sets up part of our like you know passive income engine or our pipeline there so with with that in mind that's just one example e-commerce is an example i don't have a software yet because i don't have a software team yet one day i will i'm not going to necessarily have to work to keep making money off of the software that i own that my team develops and I can have them always on payroll out of profits out of the original money that was invested in development. Now, here's the funny thing about that. That money can either be self-funded through other ventures that I did, other ventures that were either hustle income, you know, active income or passive income to build more money, you know, spending money to make money, right? So, but once the software is developed, once I own the rights to software, it's just maintenance cost, all of that can be done out of profits. So it's a recursive loop with a high profit margin and yield. So guess what? It's truly passive and I'm out of the process at that point because I'm not sitting there coding and maintaining it to the servers. I might not even have to manage the company at that point. I can appoint a general manager and I can just take profits as an owner. That's what owning a company is. And I can make decisions about the vision. I can decide that, hey, the thing I want to do is I want to be a chief marketing officer, chief design officer. I can just set the vision for what things supposed to be like in the branding, which is what I really like to do. I can just focus on the branding. How much of my attention does that require relative to the income that I'm making? Right. It's mostly automated away at that point. It's mostly automated away. If you wanted to um, be less than generous, okay, if the way that you make your income in a specific income streamer system is 80% passive, meaning that relative to the outcome maybe 10 to 20% of your effort is required relative to the outcome is that enough to call it passive or do we have to oh that's not really passive like what is does it really matter at that point i want you to really think about that if your participation is like the bare minimum and yet 80% of the outcome would be able to be created without your participation isn't that passive enough? So that's, you know, so that's, so that's a whole thing. Um, Sean guides has a question. Um, this is an interesting question. Uh, at what point are you creating products for the sake of income, as opposed to creating and doing what you love? Do you have an annual income goal in mind? Where do you, uh, when do you just do what you love? So Sean, I do what I love all the time and I do it when I'm not working. Like most people in America, I do things when I'm not working that I actually genuinely enjoy. Unlike most people in America, I don't actively dislike the work that I'm doing. Right now, this podcast, this is work. This podcast is monetized. This podcast has a sponsor that we'll talk about later. This podcast is monetized with YouTube ad revenue. This podcast has... Uh, links to resources that are affiliate links like my accounting um, service that I use or my HR portal that I use or any of the other systems or tools that I use in my business. So guess what? This podcast is something I enjoy doing. I love having this conversation with my audience and I'm still getting paid for it. Liking what you do is not the experience of most average working Americans. Um, most don't enter a career field that they're truly passionate about. They enter one for a purely profit motive, which is not wrong to do when they have responsibilities need to take care of themselves, take care of their family. I am in the position to where the distinction for most of my career has been that I do things that um, I like, even when I worked in corporate America, what I disliked was my uh, employers in many cases Sometimes I disliked uh, my coworkers largely because of how they treated me, and so it's issues for me like you know casual disrespect or casual racism or taking credit for my accomplishments or things like that were um, you know the kind of thing that I was dealing with. That's like why I don't work a nine to five corporate job anymore. That's why I needed more autonomy, more freedom. So um, for me, there's not a massive distinction between okay. Doing things I like or love. You don't have, the, I think the difference for a lot of people is they fantasize about doing what they're in love with or what they like every minute of un, every day. That's not sustainable or realistic. And it's also usually a bad idea because it's also a good way to just finish go, burning out and going through the motions and then not necessarily liking a thing anymore. Like, so I do enough of what I like which for me largely is reading books. I love reading books, listening to podcasts, listening to dope music. We're playing Zenbuster music in the background here. Um, I like spending time making content, being part of a community. So work is not something that I'm trying to escape, Sean. And, and again, that's the difference between me as an entrepreneur and content creator and the majority of working adults in America is that I actually like what I do for a living. I don't say that to brag, that was something that I got to do with risk and sacrifice and hard work, the bare minimum of luck. Most of my luck in life has actually been bad luck, um, to be honest, (laughs) Um, AKA reference why I'm still single. And so uh, that's uh, the thing is when I'm not doing content creation with the podcast YouTube, any of my side YouTube channels. Well, what am I doing? I'm reading books, going for walks. Um, You know, um, before my dogs passed away, you know, I would play with my dogs. And so for me, I get to do the things I love. You know, on the weekends, I do photography and I don't necessarily post all of it to social media. I do photography and I don't necessarily post all of it to social media. I don't monetize every bit of it. I monetize a little bit of that photography because I am proud of it. Um, I do um, personal projects. I work with my hands. I have things like model kits. And I do play video games a little bit. I don't play competitive anymore because um, uh, I had a minor problem with being addicted to video games. So there's there's not a real thing where for me oh, you're working so hard, you don't get to enjoy anything. That's not my reality. That's other people's reality, and other people project that onto people who have larger-than-life income goals. There's no um, income goal for me that probably represents, quote-unquote, enough because it's, well, what is my potential to earn? That sounds facetious to a lot of people or arrogant, or that even sounds greedy, but the thing is I have this thing in my head to where if I got to disrupt uh, certain industries, if I got to build things in certain industries well, what would that represent as a mission to me? And it's something I don't talk about a lot because like I said, at some point, I necessar- I might want to build a software company, right? Do you realize um, building a software company means I have to have millions upon millions of dollars of cash reserves to be able to hire people and give them a sustainable, good-paying job and salary and then also to be able to finance them with the resources to build a great product for our customers. So that's, that's the thing. If I want to build solutions for content creators, if I want to do more than just be a creator that participates in the creator economy, if I want to build things that help creators, support creators, protect creators, um, and make them uh, more viable, then I have to have millions of dollars to accomplish that. So I have to consider and weigh my ambition uh, against that. I also, there are family members that I support. So I have to also weigh the reality of taking care of the people I love the most in the world against that. So I have to set my expectations around that as well. And then another ambition that I have is uh, building a fund to do micro grants for creators. And so if I want to be able to fund the, the projects of creators and almost treat these micro grants that they never have to pay back kind of like almost the same way as like scholarships or as um, startup capital and um, as a VC or something of that nature, but without needing repayment, if I'm going to start a creator fund and I'm going to uh, support, you know, thousands of creators, well that create, that requires hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Granted, I'm going to raise money for that, um, you know, as a nonprofit, but I'm going to put my own money in as well. So like, What if I directly want to invest a million dollars in creators? Well, gee, I need a million dollars of liquid capital that I'm not going to miss. And not missing, it means I have to have a fully funded retirement. I have to have money in the bank to take care of my sisters. I have to um, have money in the bank to take care of my brother. I have to have money in the bank to take care of my employees and my team. I have to hire the best team in the world. That takes money. People who want to be comfortable Mostly just have to take care of themselves. And there's a very limited amount of money you have to make if all you want to do is take care of yourself, have a comfortable life, pay off your house and your mortgage, uh, live off of the interest of a decent retirement and work when you want to coast into the sunset. That's not that difficult. If you are hardworking, industrious and intelligent and you're committed, you can do that in a reasonable number of years, drive off into the sunset in your 40s or even in your uh, late 30s, if depending on how talented you are. And that would not be that extraordinary to do. And a lot of people go that route in the FIRE movement, right? So financial independence, uh, retire early, which I believe in that. Um, so my passive income goals are not associated with me driving off into the sunset. My, my goals are associated with me making the largest contribution that I'm po- possibly capable of and whatever would um, – recognize my full potential that's that's what i'm about my that's my full potential is the thing that i'm working in service of um i'm very inspired by people like elon musk jeff bezos i know it's not popular to say oh you're a fan of elon musk and jeff bezos but i'm a fan of people who are valedictorians i'm a fan of people who are the best in the world at what they do i'm a fan of people who are successful and the thing is i also am someone who came from nothing i'm someone who worked and started at 17 years old at $6 an hour. And the thing is, uh, God bless all the entry-level employees getting $35,000 a year in salary without um, an education background. Good for all of you. I'm glad that you got that. I had specialization in skills, and I didn't earn that, uh, or I just barely earned that as my exit salary from corporate America working in marketing in the small town that I came from. I had like specialized skills that were not entry level by any stretch of the imagination. And you can start a job today with no education and not much more than basic, like, you know, high school graduate. And you can basically make the salary that I had to make to be able to learn HTML code, JavaScript, PHP, MySQL, um, ActionScript, Flash animation, graphic design, um, SEO like any number of specialized skills and you can earn as much or more as me working the entry-level job in some places now. And good for you, that's fine. I'm not that salty about it. I, sou- I know I sound salty about it, but it's like, but that's what it is. So I'm not gonna be mad at um, people who had backgrounds in engineering and computer science. I'm not gonna be mad at nerds who became the richest men in the world by learning how to code, good for them. And good for the people who didn't learn those skills and still make about as much as I did having similar skills. So, yeah. <laughs> and again, I know that sounds a little bitter. That sounds a little salty. Maybe maybe there is a little something to being salty sometimes when you work twice as hard for half as much. <laughs> All that being said, I like what I do. I love the life that I have. I love the work that I get to do. I love the community I get to build. And the thing is, I am focused on making the world better for creative people um, and people like me who like are part of this new creator economy and are adding value, not just through content creation, but also skills like graphic design, skills like web design, skills like video editing. So I want to focus on the independent uh, freelancers in that industry, the content creators in that industry. I want creator owned platforms to exist. I want um, there to be grant programs like the ones I want to build for smaller creators to be able to uh, get resources, especially if they have underprivileged backgrounds. And then I want to be able to also build software because I think it's important, especially with me. um, And again, I don't mind saying this. It's like, so how many black men exist in tech? How many black women exist in tech? It's a very limited number. How many, Founders and creators in the sphere of technology are Black or Latino, people of color, right? Not that many. It's important if you have the ability to do that, to do it so that other people realize that the opportunity exists for them and that's been done. And when they have to go to their friends and family and they want to say, Hey, I want to be that, they can say, Well, here's someone who comes from our background or culture or who looks like me or shares my same struggles or whatever, and who has done that, okay? So there's there's importance, and I think this is overblown. I think it's taken out of context how um, representation works in uh, motivation models. And the thing is, my own best friend, Tiffany, she had to convince me of this. Um, She's um, she's black, Puerto Rican, and crushing it in uh, corporate, right? She had to help me understand this concept that because I'm a creative person and I can deal in abstracts, I neglect the fact that other people are literalist, right? And that happens. You you can't see the forest for the trees or you can't see past your own experiences sometimes. Most people are literalist, meaning that if they cannot see something and see themselves reflected in success then it's not possible for for them to achieve that same success, right? If they can't see it, they can't achieve it, and they can't believe in it. For them, seeing is believing. For someone like me who deals in abstracts as a creative, believing is seeing. If I believe something, then I can see it, I can construct it in my mind, and I can materialize it in reality, and I've always been that way. That's why I've actually been a high achiever in life is because I can conceptualize something in my imagination and then I can bring it into reality. That is not an ability that most people believe that they have and they don't have any evidence of them having um, that ability. Right. And so what they need to do is they need to see somebody who look like them in tech and they need to see somebody like them in entrepreneurship in certain fields and sectors or they don't feel that they have the permission to even try And in households where they're taught to look for stability, where they're taught to look for safe paths because their parents desperately and grandparents want to protect them, which is the right instinct, by the way, they condition them to set lower expectations of themselves because that is what keeps you safe. It also blunts your potential, your ambition and your sense of self-worth. That's not intentional, but it is a result The anecdote for that is those of us who can go as far as possible have to stop settling for being comfortable just because that would make our own lives easier. And we have to consider what us going the distance represents to other people. And it means something more to them even than it might mean to us because we did not always, not all of us, some of us may have had an example of that and what to strive for. And then, well, what's the example after that? It's us, right? But if you're someone who didn't need an example, you still should consider the fact that you would represent that to someone else, right? So for me, I saw this earlier in my career when I was primarily focused on my graphic design background, and there are plenty of Black and Latino people who would come up to me at events and conventions and say, I started my graphic design career because of you, And I was able to stand up for my parents and to my parents and say, "Look, I want to pursue this. And look at this guy; he's doing it, and I can do it." And this guy says that the real barrier is that we're not encouraging this, and it's not that we're being kept out. And I actually still stand by that. By the way, there is there is always going to be some form of gatekeeping somewhere in every industry to some extent, but there is less gatekeeping right now than there's ever been, right? And a lot of the gatekeeping isn't actually the people in charge. And a lot of times it's sometimes your own background that is gatekeeping you out of opportunities and out of your own potential. Just keep in mind, I grew up a black nerd. Most of the things that I love and like, I was not encouraged by the culture or the community of people around me to pursue. Only by my family members. And only with the caveat of, well, you know that also people are going to give you a hard time about it, right? which means they were being real with me, but they were supporting me when nobody else would, but they did not lie to me. They kept it real. You ain't getting support outside this house. <laughs> like, and that's fine. That's, I mean, it's not fine, but it's like a reality that I had to accept this. Okay, fine. I'll do it anyway, because I actually do care and actually do love this thing. And I love it enough to do it without everybody needing to clap for me or applaud for me or support me or have my back on it. If I have to do it alone, so be it. Not everyone has that though. Most people don't have that. If you've ever wondered why only like 1% of people are successful at a lot of this stuff, if you have ever wondered why 1% to 2% of people are at the tippy, 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 tippy top, a lot of it is the mental models. We like to believe that it's other things, but it's your belief systems. Your belief systems dictate so much more of your outcomes than you could possibly even imagine. Because you're, it dictates every other action. Every waking minute of the day is dictated by what you do or don't believe. I'm dead serious about that. J.T. Coin Ring says, so true. Seeing that you were was crushing it was epic. Thank you for that. Um, Elliot says, good points. Um, Natasha, when you say, well, how do we get that? What do you mean, how do we get that? Um, what part are you referring to, right? So, so like for me, and the reason I bring this up is, um, I, I have ambitions and goals that exceed what most people have, including my YouTube goals. My YouTube goals are a part of a larger master plan to accomplish bigger and better things. Uh, because, uh, I mean, if you look at my history, if you go with that, um, I started in the graphic design and corporate space and then went to the freelancing space, right? You can call that my apprentice era. And then my journeyman era has been, um, you know, my entrepreneurship journey myself. And then my further uh, mastery, I'm beginning the beginnings of my mastery as a founder and as a leader and also the beginnings of my journey as an investor, and so I'm at the beginnings of my stages of mastery now at uh, 37, soon to be 38 years old. My I consider ages 17 to 27 my apprenticeship of working for other people. I consider my entrepreneur background over this period of time to be my journeyman era. And I think I'm in the beginnings personally. If I'm not right now, then within the next three to five years, as I approach my 40s, I will be in the beginnings of my mastery era, but I'll be at the very, very beginnings of being that and learning what it means to be a master. And that learning will be with me for five to 10 years before I'm fully a true master of my domain and my craft and my subject matter. Some people already believe me to be that now. If I'm there, I'm at the very beginnings of it. I'm not fully vested as a master because there are degrees to mastery and I'm at the very, very bottom level of that. I'm the top of my practitionership as a journeyman but I'm at the bottom of my practitionership as a master and as a teacher and so in that way as a master I'm still a student I still have a lot to learn that's in spite of any accolades or any success what I might have might represent the top of the mountain to other people for me I'm just like base camped at like the halfway point. That's it. And it, it may have been different if I had, had a mentor. If I had had a mentor, I, I definitely would have exceeded my current limits right now. And it probably wouldn't even be close. So what do I do? I give the mentorship that I wish I'd have to other people in various forms. I do it in the form of the free content through the podcast as deep dives the more somewhat concise content in the YouTube channel. Eventually I plan to build a Skillshare courses for smaller dimensions of my skills of things that don't make sense to sell as individual product courses. The Skillshare stuff, that's gonna be passive income uh, in perpetuity as royalties from online learning education because it works on the Netflix model essentially. I expect that in a couple of years, I'll be making uh, maybe, I expect if I do it properly, that I could be making a hundred thousand to a quarter million in royalty passive income for years after I make content on Skillshare specifically, right? Uh, with YouTube, I can scale YouTube by making more evergreen content on a more regular basis and stacking it. Um, so I, I genuinely believe over the next three years, that'll be very, very, very strong, super strong, right? Um, and so that that's something that. I think about and I'm going to talk more about this passive income engine idea because I want to also teach you about the asset acquisition part of that because I think that's important to talk about. Uh, Let's see here. Natasha says, you've answered my question. It's about the belief system. Got you. Get lost vlog says, is mentorship important in your opinion? Uh, I think it is, but I I think a lot of people get lost in the sauce in that because they get caught up in like, oh, I have to pay for mentorship. It's like, yes. You do, and you should. You can have heroes or mentors from afar in terms of absorbing the lessons of people like me, and you may be able to do a little bit of it through interaction in live streams, YouTube videos, content courses, tutorials, et cetera, et cetera. Books, books have been great to me, right? Mentors from afar, the collective wisdom of hundreds of men and women that came before you in a specialized way, right? I believe in that. But if you want access to someone's time and direct mentorship, direct learning from them, handholding, and they're a successful person, it's disrespectful to imply that you're deserving of time and access to them and their energy. It's disrespecting that because why? What makes you a priority over that person's child, that person's spouse, that person's business partner, that Uh, person's team members, the people in their employ, the people immediately in their life, the people who they've had 10 years to develop relationships and friends with. What gives you, um, and I'm not talking to you directly or anybody watching this directly, but I want you to think about that. I want you to think about what makes you directly entitled to the access, the relationship, and the energy of a successful individual and not the people that already exist in their life and in their ecosystem that uh, they have relationships with. What lets you jump to the front of that line? You don't, you pay zero dollars to do that. And the answer is no. To be a priority with somebody, uh, an exchange must be made and a commitment must be made. Without a commitment, without an exchange, where's the accountability? There isn't any. So if you want mentors, you shouldn't try to guilt them or shame them or say, well, if you're so successful, you can afford to be generous with me. It's like they can afford to be generous. There's nothing that says it should be with you or that it has to be with you. That doesn't make any sense. So, you know, um, now someone asked, well, at this stage in your career, do you have a mentor now? I have several mentors from afar, and I have what you might call peer mentors. I have peer mentors that I exchange value with. Uh, some of them you may be familiar with. Pat Flynn is definitely a, a peer mentor. Uh, we're about roughly the same age, but it's not um, it's not nothing to say that I've always looked up to Pat and that Pat Flynn is the person who probably put me on my passive income journey. I'm a peer mentor to several people that are at a similar level to me, but they may not have domain expertise in a specific part of their life or their career. I've mentored YouTubers I've mentored YouTubers who have 5 million subscribers or more. I've mentored YouTubers with a million subscribers, 2 million subscribers. I've mentored millionaires because they have the humility and the respect to realize that they cannot be good at everything and they are not good at everything. And that there is still much for them to learn and value to extract because the people you look up to, the people you look up to are still people. They're still people with their same um, flaws, insecurities ambitions and desire to learn more, do more, be more. And so the thing is, a lot of people who have barely started their journey into entrepreneurship or content creation think that they're too good to pay for help or to pay for coaching or to pay for online courses or to go to an event like VidSummit. They think that You know, at uh, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 subscribers or followers, um, you know, uh, 200,000 in TikTok or whatever. They think that they're too good for any of that and to pay for information that they think is free on the Internet, that they think is free on the Internet. And what they don't know is that the people that they wish they were are almost all, not all of them, but almost all of them are a lot of the biggest ones. One, they're either paying for that expertise, or two, they've already poached people out of the market that are experts and put them on their team and put them on payroll in the background, people who were consultants and people who worked at uh, either in corporate agencies or were independent coaches or consultants. A lot of them have been hired away by the biggest YouTubers. With about 5 million plus subscribers, 2 million subscribers, 10 million subscribers, they've hired away, and I know these people personally, and I know these YouTubers, they've hired away the best talent in the market. These people have hired the best freelance videographers and video editors that existed in the YouTube community, and now these people are split among like three of the top YouTubers or whatever. They've hired the best SEO people, the best consultants, the best content strategists. They've done that. Or they've even spun up their own agencies, and these YouTubers are part owners in consulting agencies and firms now. Okay. Um, Map Hat's a really good example of this, right? From uh, game theory, film theory, food theory, like Map Hat and Theorist Media are an example of this, right? So the biggest YouTubers have already, like, a lot of them have poached and continue to poach the best talent they exist in our ecosystem and in the creator economy, and nobody really talks about it, right? So rather than having, Mentors or coaches and a lot of times what they do is they have consultants that are now absorbed into the business and have exclusivity contracts or on payroll or on retainer. A lot of people don't know about that. Um, some hire direct coaching, whether it's with me, their leaves or anybody else, they hire direct coaching. So um, the biggest people, they always invest in their craft in some way, whether it's the uh, boots on the ground, direct employees that are helping keeping everything running or getting everything made, or they build their own content strategy teams, systems, or agencies internal to their business. And then they sell that to the other YouTubers in their niche or their ecosystem. So now you'll have like a top tier YouTuber builds out a team, and then they outsource and farm that team to 10 smaller creators under them that they like as their peers, and that's a lot of how people get their support systems. And again, but at the same time, you have all that going on at the top. People at the middle and people at the top of the bottom, they think they're too good to invest in things, and they think everything comes for free, and it doesn't. So one of the things I do is I exchange value with my peer mentors, or I straight up pay their fees. I straight up pay people's fees, or I make an exchange that they want, because some of them will do that, and that's fine. So... Oh, speaking of, here's Pat Flynn. Hey, Roberto. Hey, chat. Hope you're having a good evening. Yeah, this is Pat Flynn. This is probably the person that probably had the most influence on my passive income journey. A lot of people think the entrepreneur that influenced me the most is Gary Vaynerchuk. They're wrong. It's Pat Flynn is the entrepreneur that influenced me the most, and it's not even close. It's not even close. Pat Flynn is the entrepreneur that had the most impact on my success and on my career in my entire life. Hands down. It's not Gary V. I love Gary. love Gary. But Pat's had the most influence on me. And me and Pat are both introverts. Me and Pat probably have a lot more um, in common than a lot of other people in the ecosystem. So shout out to Pat. And thanks for uh, coming through. And always thanks for being um, a good friend. I also have to hit you up about uh, some questions I have about self-publishing. Because I need that. Because the book's coming soon. And I'm moving along with that. Yeah. Um... Yes, information you pay for is usually more value than information you get for free. That and it's more specialized. Um, information that you pay for is one-on-one information a lot of times. So with coaching calls, the reason that that's valuable is it's a one-on-one. It's only about you. It's only about you. It's about nobody else. That makes it infinitely more valuable and more applicable and more meaningful, in my opinion, than something that's made for the masses. No, something catered to you only, right? And then something like a course is more specialized because um, I wrote a, I wrote a thing about this, but the problem with free information is it's made for like free platforms like YouTube, right? So free content is inferior to paid content, and I'm going to tell you why. The reason free content is inferior to paid content is because, well, okay, if we had this content and we had to pay for it, we probably wouldn't consume it or it wouldn't be consumed as much. That tells you everything you need to know. Something is valued because it's free, then that's the value. The value is the price point, not the thing itself at that point. So that's one part. Here's the other part. I hate to have to bring it up. The algorithms, the censorship, the sensitivity of certain topics, and then also uh, criticizing certain platforms or certain things or practices, again, not necessarily allowed. Or if you want to talk about something and it's a sensitive subject matter, but it's important, there might be things you want to talk about that also you can't because, okay, if you want to talk about how to keep creators safe, you want to talk about safety, you want to talk about privacy. Well, talking about it publicly gives other people ideas about how to compromise that privacy. So sometimes you can't even do that because you now create the problem you're trying to prevent. So there's any number of reasons That paid wall content ends up, whether people want to believe it or not, it depends on the quality of the source of where the information and the product is coming from. But I believe that often paid content is better because it's now an exclusive experience and the creator or educator can speak their mind freely without thinking about algorithms, uh, public opinion, um, and those feedback mechanisms, uh, suppression, or any of it. And you also get the experience the creator intended for you to have versus the experience that the algorithms and platforms demand that they give or the advertisers demand that they give. As long as we have free content, we are beholden to the interest of platforms and advertisers and to mass market audiences, which means we cannot be as specific or as open or direct as we'd like to be. And there are free speech concerns and issues there, which is why I believe that free content will be inferior to uh, exclusive paid experiences. And I know that everyone shares that opinion, but I believe that there's nothing wrong with free content inherently if you accept those limitations of the free content is what the platforms will allow, what the advertisers will pay for, and what will get people the attention. If you realize that everything that's produced is curtailed to those three objectives first, and then the actual content itself's value is a distant fourth concern – and you're okay with that because it cost you $0, then it makes sense, and it's fine. I'm not the guy here to denounce free content or say you have to pay for things. I'm just making making it clear that the notion that's promoted, and I understand why, because there are scams and there are bad actors and there's things and there's crappy courses out there. I get it. But the idea that free content is better than paid content is nonsensical because it would... It would mean that you believe that the content is not made with the algorithm being a priority, the advertisers paying for it being a priority, and then, well, what will people click on being a priority instead of just making the best thing possible? And I don't think we're so naive as to believe that. Um, And again, it's difficult to say that out loud, though. It's difficult to say that out loud because it makes it sound like you just want to shill a course but it's a criticism of free platforms which is also hard to do when you use free platforms for a living and when everyone likes free platforms because there's zero money up front but you but like we don't have we don't have a lot of room sometimes to maneuver around um like what I would guess you could call audience first or even creator first experiences versus uh, platform and advertiser driven initiative, right? Because of the incentive structure. The incentive is, we'll do what the platform is gonna promote, do what the algorithm is gonna promote. That is a direct incentive that I think every content creator is familiar with and that we all agree exists, right? So there's no getting around it, there's no denying that, there's no pretending we don't think about it. And then in terms of making this viable, well, people have bills to pay, people have kids, people have um, responsibilities. So you can't make financially irresponsible content to make, meaning that even if it's the thing you want to make or should make, you can't make content that's not financially viable because you can't do that indefinitely without creating problems. Um, so that's you know, so that's another compromise that gets made to your content. How many compromises can you make justifiably after a certain point? And does it benefit the viewer, does it benefit the consumer to have content that is free at the expense of always making uh, compromises? And the thing is, for a lot of consumers, they accept those compromises because the thing they don't want to compromise is paying money. But if you don't pay money, you have to accept all those things and accept that that's the, the deal. That's the Faustian bargain we make for free things. But what that means is we also have to admit that they're not superior we have to admit that free is not superior if that's the case because of the compromises. So there's a cost to free content, and what it is is it's uh, is the freedom of the creator to express their vision the way that they wanted or intended for it to be. Um, it's no different than when uh, movies are made and the writer and director bows to what the... Um, you know, the, the people at the, um, you know, that has to bow to what the the companies want to what the, the production company wants because, oh, well, we can't do this because of how it'll perform in China if we do that. Oh, we can't do this because, oh, this is a bad look or this won't age well. You like the, the when you take people's like money from in terms of these corporations, your creativity is restricted. So creative compromises and freedom are made when you're beholden to advertiser interest or to mass market interest. But when you make niche specialized communities and niche specialized products, you're only beholden to the customer. And that protects the integrity of the thing being made. When people support it directly with their wallet, then they're the only constituency that matters. They're the only interest that matters. When people pay for something, when people are like, we will fund this, we will support it, we will pay it, you can put them first because there's no other consideration. Right. And as creators, we don't necessarily have that in using free platforms because of how the monetization structure is set up and how it's incentivized. There are a few ways around it. There are a few caveats, but only people in extreme positions of wealth starting out or that attain it have the absolute freedom to just make whatever they want. Um, And that's kind of how it is. Uh, And by that, I mean, whatever they want and put it out for free and put it out for free. That is not something that is available to the average uh, content creator, even mid-tier content creators, even successful content creators. There's a limit to making that make sense. So I I hope everyone gets where I'm coming from with that um, and and why that would matter Um, and that the the creative freedom – I mean, primary example of creative freedom is you have to work with sponsors that give you creative freedom. You have to work with sponsors that give you creative freedom. There's no way around it you know, because um, if you don't, then OK, you're making content for the sponsors, not for the audience. Right. We all know that one. And uh, when it does happen, we do like to call you know, people out for it to an extent. We do understand people have bills to pay, though, but it's like you like what you like and you don't what you don't. And sometimes money compromises that. So what I figured out eventually would work, what I figured out would eventually work is that Freedom can be obtained largely through how much you can separate the active income component of how your money is generated. Um, If you can separate the time that you have to spend from the maximum amount of money that can be generated, it protects the thing that you want to do and that you want to make, and it gives you more freedom in every way that you want to have it, right? So there's a couple of ways that we can make passive income. We can make passive income through evergreen content on platforms like YouTube that pay us based on things like advertising. Because once the content's out, it can be published, it can be syndicated, it can go big, it can go search, it can do all these things that can keep generating income over time. However, that's not the most sustainable way to do it, especially with the conditions that exist within the YouTube partner program as just one example of creator economy monetized platforms. So then another method, one that I really like that works out, something I learned from Pat Flynn is affiliate marketing revenue, getting a percentage of every transaction that we create for a company. The best version of that that i found is software as a service, uh, Affiliate marketing, because if you get recurring passive income from that, you're making it over and over every month in perpetuity for as long as people are satisfied with the product that they bought. Um, so, again, a software, TubeBuddy being a good example, right? So, with me, uh, TubeBuddy generates $5,000 a month in perpetual passive income. Now, here is the balancing act and the the issue. You can make passive income streams and systems Um, and that's fine. Uh, but there's a, there's a caveat. Well, what do you do when you make enough money, um, from working hard now and reaping the benefits later? Okay. Well, what, what happens after the point of that sustaining your lifestyle? Here's where, um, things get interesting. Cause again, we can also do e-commerce. We can sell direct products. We can do e-commerce. We can do merchandise and drop shipping. That's another method of, um, passive income, print on demand, right? We can sell digital products. We can do that. We can do um, all of those things. Uh, We can build our own software. Okay. But what do you do with the profits once you say, okay, I've got what I need to live and it's passive. Well, the thing is you still have to account for how long is the lifespan of that passive income. And is it vulnerable to churn rates? Is it vulnerable to declining over a period of time? Uh, Is it in perpetuity? And the thing is, it usually is not indefinite. It will have a lifespan of, a, of like the the streams that you have. They might have a lifespan of five years, 10 years, 15 years. If it's software, it could be five, 10, 15 years. It just depends on the company. If it's a really good company. It'll either be 15 years or lifetime for sure. Okay. Um, but it depends because companies go under, companies go bust, companies have hard times. So you have to, it depends. Here's the the truth of how I'm approaching this. So passive income profits, and I still do active income. An example is doing sponsorships. An example is public speaking. Uh, there's other things. You could also get uh, passive income from streaming royalties and things like that or book sales, uh, right? So here's the thing. And, yes, it's obvious that you could use um, – work-based, uh, content-based passive income to then build digital product-based passive income and ecosystems. You could use it to through do passive income through leverage by hiring employees and a team. You could do all those things. But the next level beyond saying, okay, I'm spending money to make money in terms of making products or services that I'm now removed from because I used capital to generate that, that's fine. But what else can we do with that capital to make a true passive income engine? we can invest it now this is not financial advice this is not legal advice this is not that this is just me explaining how i think about things and what my passive income engine might look like and what it does look like so uh, let's consider that there are multiple methods by me making a passive income And let's say that okay there's uh, let's say that after it's all said and done let's say after it's all said and done let's say i have a couple of grand a month that is not having to be reinvested into my business, payroll, contractors, whatever. This is just, okay, there's money left over. It can be put to work to invest. What do I do with it? And let's say, let's take uh, building new businesses or new products off the table. Well, what do I do with it? Well, there's a couple of things. We can now use this to acquire income generating assets. So we have to understand what assets can generate more money and more income for us, right? So now we're having to think about all right, instead of using our money to buy things, instead of using our money to buy other people's time or to buy physical material objects for the sake of having them, what are income producing assets that we can acquire? Now, here's the thing technically, you can buy another business, believe it or not. You can buy part ownership in another business or outrightly buy another business, keep it running under the same team and general manager, and just collect money. People do this all the time. They do it with a lot of traditional businesses where they just come in and say, I want to buy out the owner, and that person will take their cash, and then you're in charge of it now. You can buy physical brick-and-mortar businesses. You could buy a uh, laundromat, you could buy a digital business, you could buy somebody's turnkey Shopify store, you could buy a whole nother brand. And it may not cost you millions of dollars to do this because you're thinking, oh my God, Roberta, that's absurd, that's excessive, that's insane. It may not cost you that. It might cost you um, some considerable money, but not millions of dollars to do this. And again, you could, save, you could save or invest toward this. A more reasonable thing to do is to buy equity in, say, startup companies. So become an angel investor. Now you're not buying a whole company outright and responsible for it. You're just one of the initial investors to get this thing off the ground. So let's say, you know, somebody very smart, very talented, you know, a talented young person and uh, they have a software or technology you could buy into that. Or, you know, some creator that's starting another business venture and they're looking to raise capital. That's why the relationships in this industry are valuable because you can keep your ear to the ground and you can get in on these opportunities. And so, um, there are a couple of creator economy startups that I'm an angel investor in now. Um, and in my case, that's like a, oh, I might throw five grand in or something, right? Like I might five, five, 10 grand. in. some of them have cap limits to where, how much you can invest. You want to make sure that you get non-diluting shares, again, not legal or financial advice. Look into that, talk to a lawyer, talk to a CPA, talk to all those people, but again, make sure your shares are not going to be diluted and that you're not going to get screwed over later as an early investor. Um, so you can invest as an angel investor into startups. Um, you could even go into crowdfunded startup projects um, that might have some guarantees or protections. There's websites that do this, like uh, Startup Engine, right? So you could go that route. What happens is if these companies later are either acquired by a bigger company, or if they're uh, publicly traded. Like, I would never get the kind of money. I don't think, well, that's not true. Um, okay, but I would never probably have the relation. Uh, that's not true. Okay, if KSI and Logan Paul were letting content creators invest in a Series A raise of money for uh, their prime uh, sports drink, right? Their beverage company. If they, um, if they were doing that, And somebody – and they said, hey, any creator uh, with like 100K subscribers can get in on this with like – and up to $5,000, you can be an investor, right? Or that's the minimum or that's the max buy-in or whatever it is, right? I would do that without hesitation. I will cut KSI and Logan Paul a check to get in on the prime sports drink tomorrow because I think they either end up being a direct competitor with Gatorade or Gatorade buys them off. And then all of a sudden the money that I put in that five grand for all I know ends up being 500 grand or 50 grand or a quarter mil. And I ride off into the sunset after paying the taxes on that and not literally ride off into the sunset, but I'm like, okay, cool. That paid off. But if it doesn't, it's five grand that I made from profits of passive income and perpetuity that I wasn't living off of. So while I will be upset and I might get annoyed I'm not gonna cry if that represents if that represents out of my cumulative um, yearly income if that represents less than five or ten percent like not even ten percent if like because that would be upsetting. Like if that represents like 5% or less of my yearly income or like 1% of my yearly income or some crazy thing like that, or 2%, whatever it is, if it represents less than, if it represents less than 5% or 10% of my yearly income, that five grand, um, then that's not devastating. And I'm talking about after tax income. If that's my after, if that represents a small portion of my tax after tax income, after expenses for my business of like, Oh, what's going in my, Coffers in my pockets after uh, business expenses and taxes have been covered. If that represents a less than ten percent of that as an investment, and it goes busto, it's not the worst thing in the world for me, or you, anybody in that situation, right? But if it goes doubling my money, tripling my money, quadrupling my money, or has some kind of payout, it's yeah, it's worth it at that point because what was I going to do? Put that money in the bank, like it eaten by inflation. At best, I could put it in stocks and do okay. So I have to do something with it versus just letting it be ate by inflation or buy material things that don't appreciate in value that only become worthless anyway or will outlive me and be passed on to somebody else. I mean, what's the, you know, so like, no. So the, the thing is, if I can use that, make capital. That I can then invest into something else, or further, or hold it in the company if I believe in it, it would make, um, it would make a lot of sense. Um, Galactic Hub has an interesting question, Berto. Do you invest in collectibles like Yu-Gi-Oh sealed products, Pokemon comic books, video games, Legos, etc.? Not Legos. I do and did have comic books, but they're in my storage and we'll see if they were water damaged or not. As for Yu Gi Oh! sealed products, I'm not buying the old ones. I wish I'd kept that from like, because I'm like old from like, I was there for like Legend of Blue Eyes, I was there for Metal Raiders, I was there. So now I buy first edition sealed stuff and I'm waiting 10, 15 years for that to be extremely valuable because I know it will be. So I'm just like, I'm buying every time a new Yu Gi Oh! box set comes out, I've been buying one or two sealed um on amazon and putting them in my closet and they remain factory sealed and they will be worth money 5 10 15 years now whenever they're out of print it will and they're sealed and i will just squat on those and in 10 15 20 years even i will literally be sitting on uh 50 or 60 or 100 maybe more at this current rate like i will be sitting I will be sitting on probably no less than a hundred in 15, in 10, 15 years. I'll be sitting on no less than a hundred sealed Yu Gi Oh box sets. And you better believe they will have all appreciated in value and will be extraordinarily rare and will be worth something. And I will make a mint. So, yeah, I'm, I am doing that because that's practical and that's kind of fun for me. Because um, I believe in the collectibles market, I grew up with it. A lot of people were like, oh, what if that doesn't turn out? And think, well, then I wasted more money than uh most people and everything like that. But at least I didn't buy Jordans or our Birkin bag, so whatever. I'd rather bet it on I'd rather buy sealed Pokemon and Yu Gi Oh box sets than and like maybe flip them in 10 years than buy Nikes, yeah people waste money on things all the time and they don't have to justify them. Right. So there's, so there's that. Um, What do I think about? All right. So the thing is, I don't necessarily, um, I don't buy precious metals or gems, but that's fine as an asset class. You can do what you want there. Um, I don't do it, but I would believe in if anyone wants to do this, I haven't done this yet I don't mind people who want to invest in the appreciating asset of luxury watches because I think that that will retain value or even appreciate over time. And one of the reasons I believe that is because I believe that craftsmanship will be harder to come by in the future. I will believe there will be less metal workers, less people working with their hands. I believe that there will be less people who um, even can care for and maintain uh, precision time pieces very well. That'll become a rare commoditized thing. So I think that cre- correct, collecting high uh, value luxury watches right now that are over five grand or 10 grand in value, I believe that those will continue to appreciate in time. You do what you want, but I do believe that. And I think that's not the worst idea if you have that kind of disposable income to do that every once in a while. It's not something I would exclusively go all in on, but it's one of those things to where, okay, if we're talking about How do you invest 50 to 100,000 a year if you're playing big numbers? And I'm saying, if you're playing big numbers, how do you do that? Well, in theory, I wouldn't mind if somebody uh, bought one Rolex out of that um, every other year over the course of 10 years. And they had a decent Rolex collection of six very nice luxury watches in their overall set or collection over the course of 10 years, um, a dozen over the course of 20. Those can be passed on, and those will, I think, appreciate over time. They will be harder to come by, and those can go very rare, especially if they're part of a set or a series. So um, I think that that's not an unreasonable thing to do if we're talking about making those numbers. And again, we're talking about the kind of numbers you make after you already have a system in place. You've been doing this for a number of years. you got your bills under control. You're not in debt, obviously, that kind of thing. So that's one aspect of it. What about real estate? Real estate's the popular thing to go into for passive income cash flow. Again, uh, real estate, if you look at it and you do cash flow calculation measurements, your real estate is great or whatever, theoretically, but it can have some issues with liquidity. It can have a lot of other issues. It's not as easy to maintain. I would argue, to be honest with you, to be honest with you, for practical reasons, as a hedge in terms of future proofing and analog and all those things if you have the money it's not an unreasonable thing to have some rental properties or in my case even better go airbnb route at first and then do the regular good old-fashioned rental properties or holdings or whatever that's fine i have nothing against it it's more traditional it's safer i have issues with the liquidity and things like that so to be honest with you if I had the option right this minute, right this second and I could uh, spend twenty thousand dollars on a real estate property versus any other passive income system that I'd invest in. For liquidity and cash flow reasons, I'd almost rather just spend the same amount of money and buy an index fund or because I'm not as risk adverse on startups. I'd rather invest it in I'd probably hedge and go into like anywhere from three to four. Creator economy startups on that same 20,000, so maybe split it, 5,000 apiece, go in on four of them, something like that. Um, one of them could go big, so I would go that route. Or I would uh, go maybe possibly the index fund ETF route or uh, go into personally, if I have $20,000 to invest in stocks, uh, I just buy the things that I think will uh, last in perpetuity. You know, things that if they go out of business, America's out of business. So, guess what? Google goes out of business, America's out of business. Microsoft goes out of business, America's out of business. Apple goes out of business, America's out of business. Amazon goes out of business, America's out of business. So, what do I do at $20,000? Me personally, I'd probably buy Google, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and probably Adobe. So, I buy Adobe, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google. That's it. That's probably how I, like, yeah, it's probably what I do. That's me personally. And that's kind of how I invest now. So it's like, that's what I'd probably do uh, with that uh, kind of money. Um, But I'm not against real estate. Not at all. Quite the opposite. But I do think that it's very difficult to be educated about real estate. I think it's probably easier to invest in things you already know and you already understand. Um, So for me, what do I understand? I understand tech. So I'd rather, you know, I understand tech, so I'd rather invest in that. I understand the creator economy, so I'd rather invest in creator economy startups. Uh, You know, the uh, collectibles market, I do understand the collectibles market. I'd rather invest in the collectibles market, right? Um, Now, those things with the collectibles market, that's about appreciation more than cash flow. Same thing with the uh with the creator economy startups, that's about like, you know, eventually cashing out on that on either acquisition or or um something like that. Or a high valuation, whatever you can do there. Stocks, uh the stock investment that's not necessarily about cash flow, but it is about liquidity. So in terms of a passive income system that comes down to cash flow, uh for me that come to well, maybe I buy into a business that cash flows. And so, me, if I have like twenty to fifty thousand dollars to invest, do I buy a physical brick and mortar business? If it's me, I probably don't. In theory, I could spend a little bit of money into vending machines, like uh, you know, uh, like a couple of people I know, like Rise the Entrepreneur, big on that. I might, but in theory, if I was going to do that, I would rather buy a stake in an existing business rather than buy another business outright, and I'd rather cash flow off of that. It'd have to be a business I know and understand. In my case, I'd almost rather buy a stake in a YouTuber at this point if I could. Like, for me. For me, I'd almost rather invest in some way having um, equity in a creator-based brand, and I'd almost rather invest in a couple of creators up front and cash flow from a partial ownership in their brand or build a business wherein we spin up new uh, creator properties, we spin up new YouTube channels, and I'd rather spend, I mean, to be honest with you, I'd rather spend like maybe uh, $20,000 to $50,000 to um, spin up VTubers. This is just me. This is just me. This is not a great idea for anybody else. But I'd, I'd rather spend twenty, 000, fifty thousand dollars 50000 and spin up um, like for good VTubers, build a system around these VTubers to where there's some kind of employee model with some equity structure and everything like that, but still be the majority stakeholder, build an org around that and build an org and then just go um, that route. Uh, but this is just me. I I'd, I'd believe uh, in building out um, creator economy businesses, and I believe that that's more of the future. So I'd almost rather do that. Investing in building um, a YouTube channel is straightforward for me because of my expertise and experience, though. That's the only reason that makes it a reasonable investment. It would not be a reasonable investment for an outsider who's not successfully done YouTube before. You can only really invest in things you know. So there's not like as many great cash flow options as, as they think. I think everything is long term right now. I invest in REITs, for example. Um, I have Fundrise. Uh, I've put a couple grand in there. Uh, currently it's like, I haven't been doing it that long. I've only been doing it like maybe two years. Um, 25% returns on my REITs portfolio. So that's great. Uh, apparently, but I haven't been doing it for 10 years. So it's like, what do I know? Right now that being said, um, I think that there's tremendous opportunities in becoming educated about investing, which is why I'm taking it very, very seriously. But again, my ability to invest is largely predicated on the fact that I have passive income that I don't necessarily need to always live off of, which then gives me the opportunity to invest. So one of the things I do is I invest in very stable things. I invest in my retirement tax advantage accounts. In my case, it's um, uh, an SCP IRA, a SEP IRA, right? So I have a traditional, I have a Roth, but I make a little bit too much money to do the Roth. So I have to do backdoor contribution thing with my accountant, but I do a SEP. So I'm not taxed on that. Up front, but the thing is, I'd rather uh, be able to invest more in a Roth type system. So we're looking into a Roth 401k for me because I'd rather be taxed on the seed instead of the tree and its fruit. So I'd rather pay taxes up front now, but not pay taxes on my capital gains when I retire. Um, because why 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 give the government 40% of what my money has earned for me when they didn't take on the risk with me? They didn't. Take on half the risk with me, they didn't subsidize half the risk. Why give them half the money? I know a lot of people are sensitive about the idea of people paying more taxes. I'm not a fan of the idea of the government itself directly being the beneficiary of the risk of people who work their lives whole lives for their money. So um, I, I don't necessarily believe in raising any of that stuff. I mean, I'm not trying to get political. I just like it doesn't make sense to me because. Um, as someone who grew up like underprivileged in some ways, like I, like it didn't benefit. So I don't understand why we're used as the, uh, prop for that when it doesn't help us (laughs) so that there's that. And then the other aspect of it that I will tackle is this, is that, um, I've been, I've been looking at this and being very thoughtful about it. I believe the most practical thing that could happen is we should have, a stronger investment in financial education and financial literacy and teach people the aspects of um, making an income for themselves, even independent of employment. We should look at uh, investment in the vocational side and trades. We should teach people about debt um, and we should teach people about interest rates and payments. We should do something about the predatory lending that happens in our system, like with the student loan crisis and interest rates on um. On those kind of loans should be um, profit capped so that there's not this incentive to continue to profit off of people indefinitely while keeping them in debt because that's just wrong to outrightly and you could do a lot of good by doing that and making it practical I don't know why the interest rate was never capped in the federal government's backing of the student loans that should have been a condition That should have been a condition but again I'm not trying to be political. I'm just thinking economically. I'm thinking common sense. It's like, okay, of course they'll do predatory lending. You haven't disincentivized the predatory lending. Um, so that's that's something we need to think about. And what can we do to help people is well? We need to make sure that we have a system of education that directly uh, empowers people to be able to earn uh, good livings by giving them skills such as trades that are not as vulnerable Uh, in market change conditions and will provide them a living largely throughout their lifetime. And then beyond that, we need to incentivize more people to go into uh, fields of STEM because we have so many well-paying, high-paying, great jobs that nobody's qualified to do because they don't have the background, the education, the credentials, and the tools to do it. And so we definitely need trade education, financial literacy, and then also we need education to align to economic realities. Education does not currently align to economic realities. And we don't teach people to make their own money. We only teach them to be employers and we don't give them the impression that being an employee is part of your financial journey versus the entirety of your financial journey. What about teaching people that um, your employment phase of your life, early in your life, represents a learning opportunity to grow and expand your skills like an apprenticeship. Then your ability to be a leader within an organization represents your ability as a journeyman to help other people along the way and to lead those who are learning um, their trade and their craft and to help them gain experience and grow. And then later in your life, you've achieved a level of mastery to where beyond your leadership, you have the capacity to truly create very skilled proficient people that honor the craft to trade the profession that you have and you can bring them up and um and and that would make things much 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 better much better if we thought of our lifespans in the form of maybe the first uh 10 years of our life's career we're low earning during that because we're apprentices and we're understanding our industry, we're understanding our craft, and we understand that if we choose a different path, we start over at Apprentice again. And then we have to put in our time. And then we go to journeymen, and we are practitioners of our craft. And we do that for 10 to 15 years. And now we can literally say we have decades of experience of this thing. We've learned it, and we've lived it, and we love it enough to pass it on. So now we become masters of our craft We do that in the later stages of our life as we continue to earn before um, we leave uh, our craft and our profession and our time in that behind. Or we demi-retire and go to where we teach it somewhat on the side, but we're not doing that for a living, right? That would make sense. That would make sense as um, a life path and a sense of milestones of like what we are supposed to be doing. But what's happening largely is people are stagnating in their apprenticeship of life, and they keep starting over again and again as an apprentice. And you can't find many people that put five or ten years into anything to excel at it. And then we wonder why they don't have personal economic mobility and financial freedom. It's because we're not teaching them the, the proper mental models to navigate a life that will produce a good outcome for them. And that's very unfortunate. And um, – It's a problem that at some point, it's a problem that at some point I'd like to find a better way to address. I'd like to find a better way to address that problem because um, I don't know that I'll be able to override the education curriculum that is set by local and federal governments. Obviously, I, I have no ambition to go into politics. So my answer is always is good to go to the private sector and figure out, is there a way to supplement people's education that might outrightly as a supplement provide something better than the quote unquote meal. (laughs) What if um, I look at um, what if I create an education supplement that basically serves as a meal replacement plan? Well, what would that look like? Well, I think what, what would look like, it requires me to have a lot of resources and to really think about what um, artificial intelligence in um, education platforms looks like. What is an AI scaled um, learning apparatus look like and how do you make that accessible to the majority of people? And how do you build it around the majority of people's needs? And how do you build it around uh, people that are also neurodiverse? What does that look like? Uh, So like, it's, it's something that's on my mind, but that's for another phase of my life. If I get the opportunity, I would like to address that issue. But I have no delusion about how much in resources solving a problem like that takes. So for me, Sure. I can make a reasonable living, make a couple of million, put it in retirement, you know, just start a family, have a nice career right off into the sunset, age gracefully. Or I could try to go hard and change the world. Or at least my part of it or my corner of it. So that's like always the, it's always the conundrum because the older you get in life, the, you, you end up having to think a little bit more about, personal enrichment versus legacy. <clears throat> so um, Dominic says, hey, Roberto, you were talking about VTubers earlier. Have you seen what Quibble cop is doing with his 15 million YouTube channel as he retires from YouTube? Yes. And I'm actually very very excited by it i'm actually very excited by it and i'm taking massive notes um i can dm him i might have questions um he's a great dude um I, I got to spend a little bit of time with him at vid summit um he's a great dude um i would like to get to know him better and i would like to learn more about this but yes um hughes says lieutenant hughes says you could always do both won't be easy but doable Yes, you can do both with compromises, but it does represent an extreme outlier situation to be able to do both. Um, We'll see how I'm feeling about that because there is a level of like humility and recognizing one's limitations, so to speak. Amanda Caldwell says, we have to think about the world we leave behind for those who come after us. Very important mindset for at least some people to have. Yeah. Yep. Dominic says, would love if you have an interview with him. That'd be super cool to learn about what he's thinking in that space. Yeah, absolutely. It would be. Um, but yeah, VTubers is something I'm looking at as a potential investment opportunity or as a startup enterprise. Like I'm trying to learn more about that ecosystem. I will respect that ecosystem. Um, I don't want to purely just, uh, build a company that then becomes a VTuber content farm, but I would want to make, I would not mind making a VTuber, uh, company though, to be very real with you. And I might talk to somebody about this. Maybe Omni would be, maybe, do you know, would be dope? I'd have to talk to them about this. Like, I don't know. I am friendly with both of them. Man, what if Omni, Nuxtaku, and I build a VTuber company? I have to. I have to think about that. Yeah, I don't even know if they would be into that or if they want to go into business with me. I'm just like thinking out loud. I'll probably just have to talk to them. But somebody will do it. Somebody will start a VTuber company with me. I have to really think about who would be great to start a VTuber company with. And I'm like, okay, what if we just start a VTuber company? Because we could do it. It'd be dope. It'd also make money. (laughs) So, yeah, we could start a VTuber company. That'd be one thing we could definitely do. Um, and it's practical it fits into my interest in my skill sets I am part of the anime I'm part of the anime community I've always been part of the anime community I'm part of the YouTube community and part of the social media and business community it makes sense and it fits my skill sets my background my passions um, and I understand how to scale businesses in a way that most people would not so there is that I don't know so um, that's just something that I think about. But again, businesses like these and things that I think about with regard to these passive income engines is you build a passive income engine that you get to a place to where, in theory, you make a um, hundred, fifty, twenty, fifty, a hundred grand a year. That is for the purposes of investment, right? You use the twenty, fifty, hundred grand a year that you have as liquid investable capital. And then you pick a place to invest in. You either invest in buying other companies or becoming part of other companies, either in terms of startups, buying into partnerships in brick and mortar companies, uh, buying vending machines. You do something with it that would produce a cash flow generating asset potentially, or you can go into real estate or Airbnb and do a cash flow business off of that. There's risk involved in all of it. You can go to the traditional investment model of long term stocks, REITs real estate, index funds. Some people, they do want to do the whole like precious metals and buy gold thing. I'm not super into it. You can go the collectibles route. It doesn't cash flow. There is a risk there that it doesn't work out the way you think it will. So again, to me, the entire point of, okay, if we do this extra passive income stuff, we're doing that not to necessarily just like sit on that cash and let it be eaten by inflation on our hoard. We put it As working capital to help other people grow their ventures and then we're rewarded by the growth because that's what people don't understand about assets and investing. People think that when you make money, the thing is, oh, it's sitting there and you're quote unquote hoarding it and everything like no, that would be like smog sitting on a bunch of gold coins that don't do anything. What actual business people do is that money is not liquid. They do not hold it. That's not even where the majority of people's wealth comes from. The majority of people's wealth on average comes from the equity in their home. That's true for most of the millionaires in America. About roughly 60% of the, the, the wealth of most of the millionaires in America is home equity. And 65% of Americans are homeowners right now. Currently, that's the current statistic in 2022. It used to be 70% at one point. So the majority of Americans are homeowners. So that tells you something right there. More than half. That's cool. Um, Median age, I believe, of homeowners is 47. I'm early. I did it 10 years early. Um, So what you do with your money is you're not necessarily hoarding your net worth or your assets or those resources. Those resources are being allocated. Resource allocation is an actual skill. Most people are bad at it right? So if you ever find yourself in the position of making passive income, you get an extra $1,000 a month, that's 10 grand, 12 grand a year, you make an extra $2,000 a month that you don't need to live off of, okay, and um, you know, that's like 20 grand a year or whatever after taxes, whatever it is, right? You have to put that money to work in some capacity or it dies to inflation, or you risk it being lost in some other way. Now granted, you should have some liquid emergency fund of some kind follow the day bramsey stuff whatever float your boat on that be debt free what have you but money that you're not putting to work doesn't grow and that's why that's one of the difference in habits between um okay so if we were to look at without rhetoric without rhetoric right because i'm a reasonable person right without record, without rhetoric why do the rich get richer The difference in the habits, and I know this as somebody who's a formerly broke person, so it's like, okay, broke, get broker, rich, get richer. How does that happen? Well, there's a difference in actions and habits. Um, If you keep working out, you can sustain your fitness or reach higher levels of fitness. If you don't continue to work out, your fitness and your health will largely decline at a certain point. We know this is true, right? Well, what about your financial fitness? What about your financial fitness? Let's look at it from that perspective. In a financial fitness model... If you are doing things that do not increase, improve, and sustain your level of health, fitness, and vitality, um, then your health, fitness, and vitality will inevitably decline. At the same time, if you are doing things that improve your health, fitness, and vitality, it increases and it grows, and that's a good thing. So let's look at it from that perspective, right? So if you spend money, and that's all you do, Whether that, whether you have to or not is irrelevant to the point. If you only spend money, if you only spend money, then okay, that money's gone. What now? You're in a cycle where you have to just keep working and spending. Now, if you spend as little money as possible and you have money that, that again, can be allocated toward investment, well, that's different. Now, what a lot of people do with their extra money is they buy comfort now. But that comfort now does not help them later. What people do when they want to become wealthy or build wealth or, or do something to secure the future of their family, what they will do is they will sacrifice comfort in the short term and in the immediate term. This is a sacrifice they're making to risk investing in their future because they could still lose in the future. But there's an opportunity for gain. They're weighing the opportunity that – think about it like this. If you have an extra $5,000 – but you know that you're gonna survive and you're gonna live even if you don't spend that $5,000, your choices are this. You can spend it being comfortable now. You can save it for a rainy day. In either case, if you spend it now, you can spend it on things that are worth $5,000 now. And largely the answer is that they'll depreciate over time. they won't be worth the $5,000 and you won't have that $5,000. If you save it, in the future, you'll have some money. But it will not be $5,000 worth of money. It will it will, be eaten by inflation. And uh, Evan has a point. He says, when you're living paycheck to paycheck, it's pretty hard to invest in capital. I was living paycheck to paycheck, and I didn't invest, and I regret it. And I did an audit of me. Now, this is not an audit of you. This is not an audit of you. But I did an audit of me. I did an audit of me. I was living paycheck to paycheck. I was broke. Most of my adult life, until I became an entrepreneur, I was making less than a starter Amazon employee makes right now, and they're living paycheck to paycheck, right? So here's the thing. I did an audit. I thought about how much money I spent on Coca-Cola from ages 17 to 27. Even a person living paycheck to paycheck between ages 17 and 27 is likely to have spent thousands of dollars on sugar water, snacks, and vending machines. And it's almost irrefutable if you live in America that that's true. In the course of 10 years, the average American will have spent thousands of dollars, if not $10,000 in a decade, on pure entertainment. That was not about survivability, even while living paycheck to paycheck, not necessarily people living well below the poverty line. but I'm talking paycheck to paycheck. Even when I was broke and I was working retail in the mall, I saved up my money and I went on trips with my friends and those trips would maybe cost a few hundred dollars. Which means over the course of 10 years, I spent a couple of grand on trips and vacations to make myself feel better about my 9-to-5 job. If at any point I had invested that capital, and this is back, um, we're talking in the early 2000s, on Apple's IPO, I would be rich today and it would not have costed me that much money, even relative to my circumstances, it would have cost me the money that I spent on small creature comforts back then to be rich today. If I had been able and thought about it back then, because I knew what computers were and gaming was, if I had bought Nvidia, and if I had bought Nvidia and AMD at six dollars a share back then, with the money that I was spending on milkshakes in the mall or on Sonics, or on dates, and I had delayed gratification, and I had bought Intel, AMD, NVIDIA, 6 eight, ten $8, $10 a share, and gotten some of that, and I had done that out of the hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars spent in discretionary spending on going to movies, going to nightclubs, beer money, vending machines, trinkets, whatever, while living paycheck to paycheck. If I, had got, if I had invested in the technology companies of the same computers that I was using for my schoolwork, I would be rich right now. Because you don't need to be rich to buy fractional shares today. Maybe it would have been harder in the early 2000s and I can cut myself a break. And I can cut myself a break. But today you have public.com, Robinhood.com, Webull and stuff like that. Right now, you can buy fractional shares of the biggest, best companies in the world that you know are going to last 10, 15, 20 years from now. So if I run a compound interest calculator against when I was a teenager, if I run, I'm because I, again, just remember, this is me talking about myself. So I'm not dunking on any of you. I'm not dunking on any of you. I'm talking about my misspent youth. I'm talking about my misspent youth. If I do a calculation and I use a compound interest calculator and I just consider the fact that like in my misspent youth, we could argue that I at least was spending um, $100 a month on crap because we all are. We all are. If I was spending $100 a month on crap, these – and and I know it was probably more than that, to be honest with you. I'm about to be um, 38 years old. If I just use the current um, annualized returns and I don't account for the stock splits of Microsoft – because, again, 20 years ago, Microsoft was a really safe bet even 20 years ago. Even twenty years ago, Microsoft was a good bet, right? Microsoft, since twenty years ago, has had more than twenty five percent annualized returns. It's closer to like forty percent, right? But I'm just gonna say twenty five percent modestly, and I'm not gonna count for things like stock splits or whatever on Apple on Microsoft or Apple, on Microsoft or Apple. So if I think about my misspent youth, like if I think about my misspent youth, Um, then if I was modest and I said, I started with only a dollar, which is not true, then, uh, the compound interest on that would have been like very high. And that's assuming a hundred dollars a month of discretionary spending, starting with $1 over the course of 20 years. So my, so ages 17 to 37, um, and that would have produced, um, 672,000, uh, $52.35 $52.35 for me, which means my contribution would have been uh, $24,000 over the course of those 20 years, and my profits would have been over 648000 during that uh, same period of uh, like 20 years in just growth, right? So that's if I invest in Apple or Microsoft during that time, not accounting for any kind of stock splits. Oh, how could you know that? Apple and Microsoft it's not, it's, not, it's not like that was rocket science, right? And again, not financial advice. And no, I don't fantasize about a world where we don't pay rent. And I never have, because that's not realistic. That's not realistic to believe that that world exists. I don't believe in fairy tales. I don't believe in utopia. I don't believe in the Easter bunny anymore. I grew up. I grew up and I know how the world works. And I know math. And that's all I need. I don't need fairy tales. And I don't need any of that. And I didn't. Even when I was, I didn't. No, practicality practicality. And the practicality is, and you don't have to get those kind of returns and it doesn't like make sense. The thing is we're assuming that for 20 years, all I would have had to invest is a hundred dollars a month. That's not true. I would have gained more resources to invest over time, which means that even coming from modest means, which I did, I would have had the money to continuously invest and have those opportunities. And I would have obviously diversified beyond Apple or Microsoft or Google, but think about it. I've had Twenty years of the knowledge that tech will be around and which good tech companies will last. There is no reason that I would have ever believed twenty years ago that Adobe's going to go under, Microsoft's going to go under, uh, under Google's going to go under, uh, Apple's going to go over. That those would have been like smart bets to make. I could have invested in those four companies and it would have worked, and it would have just worked. So that's like. Yeah, imagine if I invested in Disney before they acquired uh, uh, Marvel and Star Wars. So like I – like again, even being broke, even being broke, $100 a month, and yes, you do have that even sometimes unless you're absolutely in the worst possible circumstances ever, unless you're in the worst circumstances ever, and you stay in the worst circumstances ever for 20 years. And that does happen, but it's a rare outlier situation in America. It's a rare outlier situation in America right now, especially with the all the opportunities we've been blessed with that our grandparents didn't have. I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful that I live in the time I live in. It is not possible that I could have been born in the era of my grandparents, a black Latino immigrant, and been as successful as I am today. And it's not even close. It's not even close. So why would I like why would I pretend that I don't have the best opportunity that anybody in my entire bloodline's ever had? I'm not gonna sit here and I'm not gonna pretend that, and I'm not gonna be ungrateful for it. I'm going to recognize that even with that opportunity that even with all of my struggles I missed plenty of opportunities to do even better. I've missed those opportunities. I've missed those shots. Largely I can say that a lot of it came down to a lack of financial like literacy. And I and I don't think that just giving me more money in my 20s would have been a good idea because I don't think I would have had the maturity to respect and appreciate it. That's why I'm glad that I became an influencer like, in my late 20s, early 30s, because I think if I'd been... I think if I'd been an influencer in my early teens or 20s, um, that if I was fortunate enough to be successful, like, everybody else that age, it would have probably gone to my head. There's only a few good eggs that started out young that never got conceited or never um, lost their way. Marquez, Justine, like, they're like, you know, Austin. These are OGs that never lost their way, never got arrogant, never got um, too big. and uh, But the thing is, this next generation of influencers and content creators is not like that, and they do lose their way, and they do get seduced by the fame, the glamour, and the money, and they don't stick to their roots. And so, like, it's... Um, so, like, I don't think that just um, making money matters. I think you have to be grounded. I think you have to be grounded... I think you have to um, be honest with yourself about who you are, and I think you have to. I think you have to understand what motivates you, what drives you, what your value system is. You have to be honest about the people around you. There are people around you who could be bad influences. There are people who could take advantage of you. Some people's parents leverage them on their money stuff, or their family members do. It's like it's very uh, difficult. Some people's significant others. I've known so many. Um, female influencers over the last few years that um, their significant others um, had an incentive to not do right by them and take half their money on top of it, which is really disgusting. So there's, there's a lot to unpack in terms of well, what is the success in this industry like do to people or look like. And the thing is sometimes money isn't always um, necessarily the answer. It does help with money problems. But people also don't account for the problems that creates. And like I said, there is a such thing as asset allocation being a skill set, right? So why do most people, um, to be honest, did you know that most people who uh, blow up and become influencers go broke? Did you know that? The majority of them go broke. The majority of people who win the lottery go broke. The majority of people who win the lottery go broke. And the majority of influencers, their success doesn't last and they inevitably go broke. You know, so there's, you know, so you have to understand, you have to understand that not everybody um, functions the same way. You have to understand that not everybody's um, story plays out the same way. And that's, that's not just true of um, the hard work and things like that, because there's reasons and there's factors contributing to that, but a lot of it is mindset, principles, um, and also those things develop into habits that dictate your destiny and your lifestyle. Intentional living is a big part of it. Financial literacy is a big part of it. Lifestyle design is a part of that conversation. And one of the things that I think about with uh, passive income is, again, what am I trying to achieve? Something that is not taught is that I resource allocation. I'll give you a primary example of resource allocation, right? So a primary um, example of resource allocation and people's lack of understanding of it is this idea that, um, and I'll do the I'll do the sponsor thing uh, tomorrow. It's uh, what's today? Today's Tuesday. I thought today was Monday. Huh? No, it's Tuesday now. Oh, that that's right. It was Monday, and now it's Tuesday. Sorry, midnight rolled over. Um, so. Uh, I'll do it uh, tomorrow because uh, we're Monday through Friday now. So so asset allocation. I'll give you a primary example. Do you know what you have to allocate money to for real, for real in life if you have money? You have to allocate money if you're successful to not only your cost of living, but you also have to then if you're a business or a content creator, you have to allocate money To the thing that's making you money, if you're not an employee. If you're not, if you're an employee, all you have to do is this. If you're an employee, you have to allocate money to your living expenses. You have to pay your taxes, assuming you make enough to qualify to pay taxes. Um, Almost half the country doesn't. And then you have to theoretically allocate money to your savings if you're being frugal and if you're being thoughtful to your retirement. So if you're an employee, you have one income stream in theory, and yet that one income stream has to sustain your cost of living, pay taxes if you qualify, produce savings for you, and still somehow at the end of all of that, begin to contribute to a retirement for you if you're going to have one instead of working every day until you die. Now, one source of income Is not typically reasonable enough to accommodate funding all four of those things unless that source of income is significant in terms of a job, which means it has to be a job that is sustainable and future-proof for the majority of your adult life, which means it has to be a career field and not a job that can be replaced by automation or um, non-competitive wages. So most people's problem is that they are not earning enough to begin with. But that's because, again, the problem is largely that they were not positioned by virtue of education to do so because a trade allows you to have a sustainable living that also has an economic ladder to climb in the first place, which is why the trades should be a focus more. Because that would make sense. And trades can provide you a living almost regardless of where you choose to live. So trades would be really good for people who may not be hyper-specialized. But specialized skills obviously pay more and are harder to automate and harder to replace. So... Thoughtful lifestyle design would tell us, let me make myself as difficult to replace as possible. And you cannot merely make yourself as hard to replace as possible through just hard work. It would have to be specialized work that has some type of qualifier that stops other people from being able to replace you and you being a finite number of people that can do this thing. So the thing is, if you have a trade, you're very unlikely to ever starve. And if you have a specialized career and you keep a good reputation, it's also very unlikely. Now, if your industry is heavily regulated, that presents its own set of problems with that because then there can be gatekeeping. So you have to pick um, something in my mind that is only get gatekept based on the quality of of what you are able to produce as a result. So results-based, merit-based, right? And so that would eliminate a high level of the difficulty in itself of earning a high income. So what would a high-income specialized skill look like? Well, one of the things um, that makes sense is like um, half of a percent of the people in the world know how to code, so that's one thing. Specializing in a software gives you a community, a culture, and it makes it um, very easy to, in my mind, find, and in my experience, find a profession when you specialize in certain types of software. And therefore, there's a limited ecosystem of the number of people who are proficient in specific software. And so that's, that's another thing. Now, there is an answer for, well, what about versatility and the ability of that for people who are uh, polymaths and autodactic? Well, that's more like me. So then that's more like a creator, right? So then that's another different opportunity. Um, Now, ecosystems like being a content creator where there's a lot of opportunity and the barriers to entry are theoretically low, the barriers to being competitive in those fields are higher. So it's standards versus accessibility. Accessibility. So it's competitiveness versus accessibility. So there's a difference there. Um, and so that's something I could probably talk about in another um, episode, because I think that that's a conversation worth having. I think that's very important. But, but one of the things that I have been thinking a lot more about is uh, these specialized uh, skills, right? So it, it, from a lifestyle design, we talked about this before in another episode, from a lifestyle design standpoint, We can all look up what trades, what skills, what careers, what professions, what jobs pay what, and we can think about our lifestyle design path and we can say, well, what is going to provide the lifestyle that I want? What lifestyle do I want in my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s? Okay, well, what pays that? Okay, well, what do I have to do to qualify for that? What do I have to do or what am I capable of doing? Well, what fits for me? For some people, it would be specializing in software and technology. For other people, it would be getting a trade. For other people, it would be doing a job long enough to save up to build the type of business that they want. Um, For some people, it would be going to college and getting qualified to do the job that they want to do and have the career that they want to have. So we, we have to be thoughtful of that. We have to be mindful and intentional about life. So what I find is when people are not intentional about their life and they're reactive to life, things tend to go very, very badly because when you're reactive, when you're reactive, all you're doing is counterpunching <clears throat> all you're doing is counterpunching i don't know how many of you know about boxing or mma or martial arts in general just being reactive and counterpunching is a good way to struggle to survive a fight and ultimately still lose that fight it's a very bad idea it's not good so being thoughtful intentional And having a win condition is very important. So the person who goes in and knows, okay, I've got to set this person up for my windmill or my haymaker or my body shot combo or my takedown or my grapple. You have to go in with a specific outcome that you're trying to achieve that you know gives you the maximum advantage and gives you the desired specific outcome that you want and this is game theory, and this is also intentional living, and this is lifestyle design, and this is game theory, and this is gaming strategy mechanics of not, oh, I'm going to go in, I'm going to just see what happens. No, living life like that has usually not worked out for people. Oh, I'm just going to go in and see what happens. Going in, having a strategy, having a plan, having countermeasures, understanding what you're going to go up against, that makes the most sense. And strategically ap- approaching life is – what tends to have the most favorable results for people. It's not a guarantee of those outcomes. It is the most statistically likely way to get to them. And we know that, well, most failures are predicated on preparation being the where everything faltered. If you don't uh, plan to succeed, then you're, you're definitely planning to fail. So that's that's something we have to really focus a lot more on is the fact that it's like we are not – Getting people to be intentional and say, what do you want from life? And be specific about what you want from life. Okay, so that's the outcome you want. But what is, the, what is the process by which that outcome can be achieved? How do we get to your win condition? How do we get your parts and pieces on the board to make that happen? What do we do? And I wish that this is a mechanic and a thought that like most people, most people need mentors for this. Most people's guidance counselors are not fully educated or equipped to do this, and that's not a disrespect to them. It's just that it's not the way that we are taught, and we're not taught to think this way. This is what would change our lives, and this would would better our lives is if we were if we were taught to be intentional, and to build systems, and to have specific outcomes that we're designing our actions and our processes to get to, to get to. So like, let's say, let's say, for example, let's say, for example, your win condition was you want to be a successful full-time YouTube creator. Well, what are the win conditions for that? How much money does someone need in order to be a successful full-time YouTube creator? Well, to be a full-time YouTube creator for most people in most parts of the United States of America while it's not the amount they make before they go full-time, the realistic number for that is probably $100,000 a year. And why is it $100,000 a year? Well, because you have to pay self-employment taxes, state taxes, um, federal taxes, and if you're in New York or California, you have to pay municipal city taxes. So you're taxed four times on the same dollar depending on what state you live in. Depending on what state you're living you're taxed four times on the same dollar. Depending on what state you live in, you're taxed two to three times on the same dollar. So you need to make $100,000 or more when you're taxed four times, to two, three, four times on the same dollar. So that's, that's a problem that you have to address. That's a reality you have to address. To be a full-time sustainable YouTuber and build and grow, you probably need to have – at least some part-time people or the ability to subcontract to uh, freelancers or get extra help. That's going to be necessary. You're going to need certain software and a lot of it's going to be monthly on subscriptions. You're going to need money to set aside for your future and for savings and retirement or for when cameras get busted or equipment gets busted. You're going to need to invest in making better content for your audience and being competitive in your niche. There's going to have cost. So it's not just about what you want to take home and what you want to live in terms of lifestyle, there's costs associated with your business, there's taxes, there's uh, people you might need to pay, there's services you need to pay for. You have to have insurance, you have to have bookkeepers for the taxes, CPAs, you have to have money set aside for potential legal fees, you need have money set aside for when you can't upload and work. You need all of these things in place um, to be viable as a full-time YouTuber. So now you know that, okay, Well, to make that kind of money, you have to look at your niche and then say, well, damn, how many views do I have to get to make that kind of money in ad revenue? Oh, well, maybe I need to make more than ad revenue, so maybe I need to also make my content to be set up for being friendly to sponsors later. Maybe I need to diversify. Maybe I need three ways of making money so I can cash flow because, hey, if I go to YouTube and I'm working on ad revenue, well, that's one paycheck on the 21st of the month. Cash flow wise, that may not be good for me. So I need a way to make cash in hand without doing that. Well, if I go sponsors, well I'm still waiting 15 or 30 days after I publish a video for that check. So wow, that's not necessarily great for me on cash flow to live my life sustainably without anxiety, or even if I save up. So what else do I have to do? Well, maybe I need to uh, sell merch so that I have those payouts and do that. Or maybe I need a product of my own or a digital product. Or maybe I need multiple affiliate stuff so that I have more paychecks coming throughout the month because I might need cash flow to be able to pay uh, for emergencies or insurance or my family or healthcare cost or whatever it is or something else. Uh, so there's all these factors that then say, okay, so to do that thing, I have to consider all these processes and all of these variables and you have to prepare for that. You cannot be a reactionary in life and be successful. It doesn't work. It's very unlikely to work. It would be a rarity for it to work. The success will favor the level of preparation that you have done and also the specificity of what your actions are designed to accomplish and how well did you execute those things how well did you adopt uh, sorry adapt when they didn't work out that's what would matter and so someone who thinks in that model is very different than somebody who's just living their life which is why there is a higher ratio of failure than there is the success in entrepreneurial endeavors because if you're an employee you have a framework where your reactions to life have a minimal impact on that constant and secure twice a week or weekly paycheck, or sorry, twice a month or weekly paycheck, right? So there's very little uh, disincentive to just react to everything that's happening and to have forethought into it because of the security and guarantee. The lack of security, the lack of stability, the lack of guarantees in entrepreneurial or self-employed ventures mean that it does not give you the luxury of only purely waiting and seeing and reacting. Everything must be about preemptiveness and striking first and planning and thoughtfulness and mindfulness and precision and being calculated, being thoughtful. And that's not most people's temperament in life, which is why even though the opportunity I think is available in the 21st century and in the creator economy for many people to be self-employed, entrepreneurial, build businesses, build brands, it's set up for you to win the temperament and mentality and um, emotional regulation, the mental capacity required and mental toughness required is not necessarily um, a set of normalized qualities that exist in the average person. It would be a choice to change oneself into being even slightly above average in very specific ways to be suited to this. Some people... They have the gift, but not the calling. And so what do I mean by that? You have the gift, but not the calling. You might have the talent for something, but not the temperament. That's the difference between the gift and the calling. You might have the calling, aka the mentality, the temperament, but you may not have the skill to make it viable. The difference is you could train and overcome your talent deficit. Which might be easier in some cases than overcoming your mindset and your temperament. So, a lot of times, you run into this situation where some people, like I said, they have the gift. They lack the calling. And it's much easier to be talented, but have the wrong mentality and temperament to make that talent work to its full potential. To its full potential. So Dominic says, the difference from doing freelance work here or there versus starting my digital media company in 2021 is that such a pain that there's so much more you got to do. I love it though. Yeah, I can relate to that. Get Lost Vlog says, you got to really surround yourself with people and opportunities that level up your life. You absolutely do, but you have to be intentional about those relationships versus just being stuck in a room with people. A lot of people are not thoughtful in, and, and about, well, who am I keeping in my life and why? And that sounds really messed up. It's like, oh, well, like, wait, you can't keep people in your life who aren't serving you. It's like, well, what life do you want to live? Do you want to live a life that makes people happy with you because you're easygoing and you let them have their way? Or do you want the best life that you're capable of having? And so if you want the best life you're capable of having, you might need to have some standards and boundaries for who gets to be in that life and that's really difficult to say like not everybody can be in your life if you want to live your best life you know no one will talk about that right like not everybody if you want to live your best life if you want to live in your best if you want to live your best life not everybody can stay in your life if you want to live your best life not everybody can be in your life that's just uh that's a uh, that's a harsh one but like hey Zach says, my guard's up since CES, being more careful about who I surround myself with, but overall was a good experience and lots of growth personally and professionally. Good for you, Zach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's a thing. Andrew says, Andrew Paulo, hey, what's up? Full-time YouTube is so much more stressful than my nine-to-five job. Peeps don't realize that. I was a full-time pharmacist and went full-time career in October. Congratulations on being a full-time creator. But like, yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I I genuinely can agree with the sentiment that um, being full time can be more stressful because, again, I don't think people respect the skill of time management being a thing, resource allocation being a thing. Um, Again, in life, here's how I think about the resource allocation thing. Think about this. I had to learn this, by the way. I had to learn this. I had to learn this. I wasn't even taught. I had to learn on my own. So I have to think about resource allocation. Do you realize why I built Uh, Over 15 different income streams. I built 15 different income streams because I realized that it's like, okay, you have whatever level of lifestyle you want to sustain and have for yourself and your family. Well, that's going to cost money and you should probably have a single or multiple sources of income that can differently fund more than that. And so, okay, what's the allocation of resources to that you have to build income and allocate resources to that. And then you have to manage that and be frugal, responsible, keep down debts, liabilities, and things like that. You also have to have insurance and protect that. So that's going to take money. So, okay, you might need more than one income stream. For your lifestyle, when you think about, well, your lifestyle is just paying your obligations and your bills and keeping out of debt. But what about protecting your lifestyle? What about all this insurance that you have to have? Well, you might need more than one funding mechanism for that. But what about emergency healthcare? You might need an income source that can cover more than just your bills and things like that. So you might need one more there. Oh, well, what about if you take on things like pets and stuff like that? Pets can be very expensive when they have healthcare costs. You might wanna think about that. So there's all these different things in lifestyle that you say, gee, you know what? It might take more than one income source to live my best life. So there's that part of it. Then there's taxes. Okay, I might need an income source that definitely can make sure that that income source funds my tax obligation. So there's that part of it. Well, how do you make your money? If you're not an employee, then you need money to fund your business. Your business needs to do better than break even because you still need operating capital so that the business has runway to survive so that you can pay your people correctly. And you need that. You also need money to invest and grow the business so that you can keep on taking care of people and you can keep generating the money that provides for your lifestyle and so on and so forth. So you need an excess of that, and you need probably more than one stream there, right? So then with the multiple income streams, well, then you still need savings, okay, in addition to those profits. You need savings. So, okay, you probably need a funding mechanism your savings right and see like we as individuals don't think about well how do we pay for that what's the funding mechanism because for a lot of people it's like well i'll just get a job that doesn't necessarily always work out or have the answer i mean look at what happened to people during the pandemic right it's like you need to think about the allocation of assets and resources in your life and your lifestyle and in your future and you need to be thinking like this is why you want to know something about like this is why you have to even if you're struggling right now or working like you have to consider maybe I have to give up my leisure activities and I have to give up my hobbies, my vices and my free time to start to address this one way or the other, one way or the other, because maybe help isn't coming or maybe things don't change. I know a lot of people are like, well, what if we change the systems? What if we do this? What do we do? Let's assume that that's not going to happen. I'm very I'm, I'm kind of cynical sometimes. The most reasonable thing, and this is what got me through surviving being broke, by the way. The most reasonable thing I ever did in my life was convince myself that the system would not change. And if it did, it would not change in time to benefit me or any children or grandchildren I would have. I convinced myself of the worst timeline possible. And this is actually really practical. It sounds horrible, it sounds pessimistic, it sounds depressing. I convinced myself that there's no way in hell that there will ever be a series of politicians or a version of government that will ever help me. And when I convinced myself of that and that help would never come, it was easier to just move forward for me. Now, that will not work for everybody mentally because it will make them too depressed. But that was my answer. My answer was let me assume that nothing will change, and even if they agree to change it, they will botch it. They will screw it up. And they will get to me dead last. Let me make that assumption. Now, it's easy to make that assumption when that's the experience of generations or your family. So that's one thing, right? So with that assumption, it's easy to say, okay, well, I still want my life to be better. So assuming that um, massive change and reforms that would uh, externally improve my life are off the table, what is reasonable for me to do? I found that you can still, for me at least, sleep eight hours a day and go to work and be mentally healthy if you give up vices and hobbies and embrace new habits in the form of my new way of blowing off steam will be reading and working out and meditation and listening to music and pretending that the electronic stimulation of entertainment was never invented. Right. So if I just assume Netflix and cable television were never invented, but the knowledge base of the internet exists for the purposes of educating myself. So, like, okay, education exists on the internet, but entertainment doesn't. Right. I convinced myself that it's like, okay, education exists, entertainment does not. And with reading and podcasts and audiobooks and music and things, I'm like, okay, education exists, entertainment does not. And my new other form of entertainment is working out. When my friends would hit me up, I was like, whatever we're doing, it has to be free. It has to be free or it has to be less than $5. Like I became frugal as hell. I became frugal AF. I became cheap. I was like, you hit me up. We got to do something for free. I also became very stingy about my time. I was like, I got an hour. I got two tops and that's it. On my weekends, I'm like. Guys, I got two hours to, to hang, and that's it. I cannot hang the whole weekend. It's like, wait, we could do this all day, and you could still have eight hours to work on stuff if you want, or blah, blah, blah. I'm like, nope. Nope. I've got two hours to have fun with y'all. I got two hours to chill. And yeah, people stop inviting me to stuff. Whatever. But it meant I was able to get my life together. It meant I was able to do what I needed to do and be where I needed to be, and I wouldn't change it. Would not change it. Would not change it. Not change it. So... um. My actions had to match the ambition that I had for my life. And that was on me. And that was what I did about it. And I still did it healthy. I was healthier. I was healthier even working a nine to five job by cutting out alcohol, gaming, television, uh, partying, all of it. Like, I think that most people can change their life by living like a monk for five years. And so setting those boundaries and like choosing that this is the level that I'm going to change my standards of what respecting myself is. And it's okay if that is not compatible with the people in my life and that, hey, um, it's then a matter of when I get where I want to be, it, a matter of like, well, when I do have that time, are they in my life then? And are do they support that? And do they support that? And not everyone will. And not everyone will. Uh, You can lose friendships, you can lose relationships, you can lose significant others, but is that a worthwhile price to live life on your own terms? Seems like heartbreak is a, a little heartache is a small price to pay to live free on your own terms, to live your life freely on your own terms, a little heartache to be had, but it's a small price to pay in the end. People go, Well, like, well, what about like dying old and lonely? It's like, I really doubt that sacrificing in your 20s and 30s means you die old and lonely because I think it's a lot easier when you make sacrifices in your 20s and 30s to then cultivate relationships in your 30s, 40s, and 50s that are people that are much more interested in your betterment and are also in a healthier place in their own lives to treat you better and to treat you with different standards. Um, you know, it's like, I mean it's like the idea that by blowing people off in your twenties and thirties is going to mean that you're sad and lonely. And so you have to settle and lower your standards and set boundaries. That's really convenient for the people who want to waste your time in your twenties and thirties and take advantage of you. It's really convenient for them to convince you of that. It's a great way to get you to settle. It's a great way to get you to settle. So like, so guys and gals just understand that like, that's, that's what a grift looks like. That's the grift. Okay. (laughs) Like, So, uh, I mean, that's in the best interest of those people. That's not in your best interest. Never has been. So, um, by deciding, uh, very intentionally to live a a, a more productive life, a healthier and much more productive life, even, um, you can change your life even when you're broke by just really focusing on, um, your standards, your values, eliminating vices, looking hard at the relationships and people you have in your life and like who wants what's best for you um and you have to sacrifice something um you have to sacrifice something on the altar of your success um i don't recommend sacrificing your health or your uh, mental or emotional well-being on the altar of your success toxic relationships definitely sacrifice that on the altar uh your vices sacrifice that on the altar bad habits sacrifice that on the altar distractions sacrifice that on the altar You know, things that do not serve you, sacrifice them on the altar of your success. Anything that does not serve you, I think it's appropriate to sacrifice that on the altar of your success. Make your offering to your ambition. Make your offering to the best life that you want to live and and just make those sacrifices. Offer them up offer them up. Like that's for real. That's like how I feel. That's my philosophy though. That's mine. It may not be for everybody, but I do believe it's a mental model that ultimately could produce better results for people who had, you know, hard, hard life circumstances and are trying to make a difference in their life. Um, because I have very little confidence and faith in, um, in any real meaningful change coming from outside of yourself. While it's not impossible, I think the most reasonable, as cynical as it might be, assumption would be that it's not going to happen because it probably didn't happen for your parents or grandparents or them, their parents. So, like, it's not necessarily a reasonable conclusion to say, oh, well, this time it'll be different. That's not a reasonable conclusion to draw, in my opinion. Therefore, I, um, like, for me... I definitely think that you have to say, well, from an intentional standpoint, what am I capable of doing? What can I focus on? What allows me to be the agent of change in my life? And I will do what's necessary to do that. And for a lot of you, that path and that journey could be freelancing. It could be content creation. It could be e-commerce. It could be any number of things. It doesn't have to be my exact path in life. Um, You know, I don't think it's about circumstance. I think it's about intention. And I think that what it really is, is that your actions have to match your stated ambition. Your actions have to align to your stated ambition and you need to declare yourself. You need to take a stand on what you want from life. You have to make a stand on what you want from life. And you have to do it. You have to do it. And you have to make a true commitment. You have to make a true commitment. Do or do not. Do or do not. You have to commit. It's do or do not. There is no try. Do or do not. Do your best or do not do your best. Do your best to have the life that you want or do not. There's no try. You do your best or you don't. You commit to doing your best or you do not. There is no try. So, I mean, and that's just, that's just one man's point of view as he sits here and quotes Star Wars, you know? So so that's, I mean, you know, that's, that's my general feeling about that. But with regards to the passive income side of things, you do active income, you do work up front, you make money, but then you take a portion of that buy back time, use that time to then build something that you can, um, obviously generate money from over and over and over and over and and so on and so forth. And, and so what I want to do is, uh, before we close out and then we go to, uh, for the live viewership, the Q and a portion of this podcast, uh, which is an exclusive live experience. Uh, so you have to be subscribed over on YouTube to get that. Uh, so definitely make sure you're doing that link in the description and in the show notes, uh, the, the thing that I do want to leave you with is I'm going to explain the difference between active and passive income in no uncertain terms for all of you. So remember, when I say passive income, I'm talking about income you can make through systems and automation and tools and so on and so forth, or even leverage, right? So um, let's look at it this way. If someone works uh, the maximum capacity of what they can healthily work or what we say is a healthy workload, uh, in the United States of America, and they did it for $15 an hour, right? They did it for $15 an hour. They did it for a quote-unquote living wage. Uh, they make $30,000 a year if they don't do overtime or any of that stuff, right? So it's $30,000 a year at the same $15 an hour, okay? So that's for whatever value that $15 represents at that time in the market. Well, what about if you built an automation? How, how often can a machine work? See, a machine doesn't need a lunch break. A machine doesn't need to rest. A machine doesn't need to stop. So doesn't an automation have 24 hours in a day that it can basically run? So anything by automated means that can that you build to generate the same value as you can produce in excess of that value because it can work the entire workday 24 hours. But also instead of wanting a four or five day work week, It has a seven-day work week. So instead of its capacity to outwork you being three times, its capacity to outwork you is closer to four to five times. You cannot compete with the machine. So the machine that can create the same $15 in value per hour can do it 24 hours a day and 365 days out of a year Compared to you only being able to do it um, at 40 hours a week, 50 weeks out of the year for that same $15 an hour. So what's the net difference? The net difference between you working 40-hour weeks, 50 hours out of the year and making $30,000, the machine that can create the same value as you at the same rate of return can earn 141000 $300 per year. And that's the difference. Um, and I'm just going to double check that math here to be sure. Because again, what we're talking about is 365 days a week, a year, right? 365 days a year, 24 hours in a day for that machine, because it doesn't need to stop. It doesn't need to rest. And it's doing it at $15 an hour. Yep. Here's the math. That's what the machine earns. The machine earns $131,400, One hundred thirty-one thousand. dollars because the machine doesn't need to rest, doesn't need to stop, and doesn't need a day off at the same value rate as you, at the same value rate as you. That's passive income if an automated system, if a machine where someone can say, I want value, I put money in, I get money out. You do this all the time. As a consumer, you put money in, you get money out, a human's not involved. There's so many transactions you do like that. So if you built a system where that same transaction is possible, well, now you're making automated income too. You're making passive income too uh, eventually. And so it was, well, what does it take to maintain that automation? Well, in a lot of automated systems, it doesn't take much. Or if it takes capital to pay for things like web hosting or e-commerce platforms or online advertising, the margins are really good. And so it's worth it to spend money to do that, to build those systems. And the thing is, I'll give you a primary example. I'll give you a primary example of it with YouTube, right? I'll give you a primary example of YouTube. What if I have a YouTube channel that has an RPM of $15? What if my CPM is $30 and my RPM is $15? So my take-home from that YouTube is $15 for every 1,000 views that that YouTube channel gets, right? What if my YouTube channel gets a thousand views every hour at that $15 rate? So then all of a sudden, my YouTube channel is a $15 an hour employee that doesn't ask for a raise, doesn't sleep, doesn't complain, doesn't take sick leave, and never stops. If you build a scaled, highly profitable YouTube channel, the ad revenue that that can generate passively, if it's evergreen content, education content, highly valued, at a high enough rate, can generate $15 an hour by generating 1,000 views an hour, which is 24,000 views a day, which with enough content built with the right strategy on evergreen content can absolutely do that. And you know what channels are capable of doing that? Tutorial software channels and personal finance channels are capable of doing that. Entertainment channels, not as easily, not as much, but product review channels, product review channels in tech niches, product review channel channels in tech niches, Um, and things like that, Uh, camera channels, video editing channels, filmmaking channels are capable of this. They're capable of this. And not all of them make that, but these are the conditions that I'm outlining. These are the win conditions. These are the win conditions. So someone could decide, oh gee, I want that from YouTube. If that's only ad revenue. What if that's not ad revenue only though? What if it's that you knew, what if you knew, what if you knew a YouTube niche? What if you knew a YouTube niche where with Amazon affiliate revenue that every sale was going to make you $100? How many sales a day do you really need? Because if you knew every sale was going to make you $100 and you knew, well, gee, I need five sales. Well, gee, um, five, five, like 1% rule. So, how many people do I need that might click on like a link or something to get me those five sales? Let's say, let's say w- only one in every 1,000 people buy something. So, you need 5,000 views to make a sale, right? You need 5,000 views to make a sale. What if you build a YouTube channel that is exclusively reviewing products that you know have a $100 commission? You know that they're highly searched highly valuable to a specialized market of professionals. And you know that every sale guarantees you $100 every single time. And you know that if you make five sales, you're going to make $500 every single day. And you know that if you make $500 every single day, that you're going to make $182,500. Do you know what niche is capable of doing that? Do you know what niche is capable of making those kind of sales after a long period of time of proving itself and and de- definitely generating five, ten sales that have hundred dollar commissions in Amazon a day? What niche do you think that is? I'll give you a hint. For those of you in the audio-only audience, Roberto just went and got his uh, camera and camera lens. High-end cameras and lenses for photography and video have extraordinarily high Amazon affiliate commissions. And when I say high, I mean that I could probably look this up and I could probably show you, but like, I mean that like one of these professional lenses is between 90 and $120 commission. It's between a 90 and $120 commission. Some of these camera bodies are a 100 to $250 commission depending on the circumstances. And when you're in a specialized market where all you do is review cameras, and you have enough volume of traffic, and we know the 1% rule, or even if we use the uh, the point 0.1% rule in sales, if you have that much traffic around reviews, around so many cameras and so many bodies after a period of time, um, the inevitable outcome is a certain amount of those sales. And so making 500 to to $1,000 a day because you got five to 10 sales when you have hundreds of videos around exclusively camera products, which does take you years to build up to. Cause again, none of this is overnight success. The problem with people and the reason scams exist and people don't believe in passive income is they are thinking, Oh, I'm gonna do this in six months or a year. And then I'm going to be in the money. No, it doesn't work that way. You're going to do it for five or six years and and maybe you'll be in the money. Maybe like if you're good. Um, and so, yeah, there's qualifiers to all of this clearly. And that's why there are outliers. And think about it like this. Remember what I said, the reason so few people are successful is also the longevity factor of how many things happen to somebody in their life over the course of five to 10 years. It takes five or 10 years of consistency to pull off a success. Well, how many things go wrong that people didn't have a plan to deal with? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. How many people can take a punch? How many punches can they take? What is their plan for taking a punch? What is their plan for dodging, ducking, counter punching? What do they do to see those things coming to avoid those punches? What circumstances and what strategies and, and what planned behavior do we have to condition ourselves to be successful and what do we do to prepare for our success very minimal and we don't identify opportunities either we don't we don't do any of that stuff and then we wonder well why are only one to two percent of people successful and then we attribute it to luck we attribute it to this nonsense called luck as if it matters without preparation I could I could hand you the blessing of the greatest opportunity of all time and you have no preparation to execute on it, it was squandered on you. It was worthless. I should have picked someone else because you weren't prepared. So it was meaningless for you to have the opportunity if you were only going to fail because of a lack of preparation. What if you what if the opportunity is right in front of you, but you lack the discernment and judgment to recognize an opportunity? The luck didn't help you. Having the opportunity, it wasn't lucky. It was you. Okay? So if you lack judgment and discernment you can't recognize opportunity if you lack preparation you can't um, capitalize and, and make good on the opportunity and what if the opportunity is there and you are prepared and qualified and what if you do recognize the opportunity but you lack the courage to even approach the opportunity to go after what you want you lack the courage to even step up to the bat you choke it was squandered on you it should have went to someone braver luck is meaningless without having and contextualizing the characteristics that will produce success given opportunity. Luck is meaningless without the characteristics that would make an opportunity lead to a successful outcome. i collect pluck your soulmate out of time and space. Put them in front of you. If you can't recognize that person is your person, it was a waste. If you... Go up to them and you blow it, it was a waste. Or if you don't go up to them once presented that opportunity, it was a waste to give you the opportunity. So we can't sit here and pretend that it's a lack of purely a lack of opportunity, purely a lack of luck, that it's purely circumstantial because you need the characteristics to make the most of what you've got. You have to be able to make the most of what you got anyway. That always comes down to how you're, how you're conditioned, how you're built, what you're thinking, what your mindset is, and you act as if these things are immutable and that you're just born with them. They are things that can be cultivated, things that can be changed, and you have that ability and capacity to change yourself, change your actions, change your uh, inputs. You change your inputs to change your outputs. I hope that this podcast is part of you changing some aspect of how you think and how you behave and how you choose to be mindful and thoughtful and intentional about how you live your life, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, how you spend your energy, what you do in setting standards for yourself, boundaries with other people um those things matter they matter tremendously and they play a bigger role in where you end up than you might possibly imagine but it's hard sometimes if you don't even know what's on the table and i get that and that's why i'm trying to you know if um if, if, if opportunity if, if if good luck or bad luck is nothing more than uh than then preparation confidence and opportunity my hope is that in one day we'll know that you were prepared because i would have had a hand in it i would have had a hand in preparing you for whatever opportunities might come and that preparation And helping you with your judgment and discernment to recognize opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise, introducing you to those opportunities, that's something that I'm trying to achieve with uh, all of my content. And then also trying to help you understand the habits that produce confidence. I was not confident in my public speaking when I started YouTube. You can watch my oldest content. You can see I was very bad at it. I was very bad at it. So I worked on it over And over by showing up on YouTube and feeling nervous and anxious and embarrassed all the time until I got better. You can watch my oldest content on my channel and you can see it. And so that would matter. Um, You know, I, I wanted to be confident in the things that I'm saying. So what I do, I read books and I educated myself so that I could know and I could speak with confidence on them because I would be educated about it. I want to be confident in my appearance. So whenever I'm not, I work out um i learned to start dressing for my type I, I learned how like for my body frame and my body type and everything i've gotten older i've accommodated that so uh if i want to be confident i have to build a reason and a justification for being confident. it's not purely a mindset game it is also on my actions it's also on me because when i hold myself accountable That is what is going to produce my confidence. And so if I want to hold myself accountable and I want to be confident, I need a reason for that confidence or it's just bravado and arrogance. So I'm confident in things I'm saying because I've done my research and I understood the assignment. (laughs) I'm confident in myself when I go out in public because I know that I'm dressing appropriate to my body and my type. And I know I've been taking care of my body with the way I choose to eat, the way I choose to work out, and the way I choose to live. And so that was where getting rid of my vices, like not drinking alcohol, Uh, like I only drink on occasion socially and I don't do it much. Like so, you know, like not and in my 20s, aside from when I got really depressed, like I would avoid that in my early 20s. My friends tried to peer pressure me into getting blackout drunk with them all the time. And I was very resistant to that in my mid twenties, I got very depressed and they were like, Hey, did you want to slow down there? So the guy who was straight edge is like, Hey, do you want to slow down there guy? It's like, or don't throw up in my car or whatever. It's like the game. Oh, well, maybe you you've had enough, like it, it, you know, so, um, habits matter, taking care of yourself matters, respecting yourself matters. Uh, these, these things are important in life and you have to live an orderly life and you have to put yourself together and, then you can have the foundations of what will allow you to be successful Successful when you're presented with the opportunities. So, I mean, that's, that's what would make a difference. A lot of people are waiting for something else to make a difference. It's like, well, what if what you're waiting on is you? Um, and that sounds hokey, and that sounds like, oh, you're shilling self-help books. But no, it's like, it's sports, actually it's sports you you want it like nothing like anything you want to look at in personal development and everything like that it's like I don't know I understand why people are somewhat skeptical of it I get it but that's just really cynical because I'm like it's nothing that your your coach if you played soccer or track or football or basketball wouldn't be telling you in their own way in their own way like it's it's that but here's the problem not everyone has like Good parents to teach them or mentor them, right? Not everyone has good teachers. Not everyone has uh, goes into sports or has a coach or a sensei or whatever, right? So some people do need those self help books or self help speeches or whatever. I don't know that you have to pay ten or twenty thousand dollars to go to a seminar or nothing. I don't think you need to do that. But that's just me. I mean, if you got it like that, why not? If you're if you're a rich executive, maybe you do need to go to that and therapy and get your life together. I don't know. I don't know your pockets, but I do know that there's no harm. In buying a $20 book, if you leave it there or buying two or three $20 books, I mean, what else are you going to do? You're going to go there and you're going to like, you know, buy liquor with that or buy beer, or you're going to buy, uh, like vending machine junk food or like really bad food. Or like, what are you going to, what are you going to do? It's like, we're going to pretend for one minute that you're going to buy fractional shares of Apple and Microsoft with that $20. It's like, not until your head's together. No, you're going to buy things to make you comfortable. And what makes us comfortable is cheap dopamine. So that's gonna, in many cases, be self-medicating with uh, drinking, um, or maybe other substances, or or bad food, um, and or, or or hanging around bad people, and that's not good for us. And we do it, and we know that, and we do it, especially when we're in our twenties and we're stupid. Like that's what college is for a lot of people, right? It's where we make your mistakes. So if you if you even get to go, right? So so for me, um, I don't see any harm in spending $20 on a book. I'd prefer you spend $20 on a book, to be honest. Like th- that that's again, that's me. And that's maybe I'm being hyperjudgmental, but um, I think that spending $20 on a book or a gym membership is a much better use of your money than most things. Spending $20 on home fitness equipment, buying a good jump rope, buying some weights, saving up $80 and buying a workout bench. Like, um, much better use of your money than buying um, an Xbox or a Switch or a PlayStation or whatever it is, right? So, like, I would rather someone spend $500 on personal development crap than $500 on video games. But The thing is you don't have to rationalize $500 on PlayStation to your friends as much as you do, like, um, buying self-help books and um, – and things like that, or even like, you know, weights and 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 things like that, workout equipment, like you'd have to rationalize and justify that a lot more to people than, oh, you bought video games or, oh, you bought a big screen. They'll applaud you for that. People will mock you if you spend $30 on a self-help book, though. And that's just kind of where we are in culture, and that's kind of sad. You know, like, but it is what it is. And I understand. I mean, it, it, there are some con artists out there. There are some like fake gurus, but it's like, I don't think that you can waste $20 on a book. Even for fictional books and fantasy novels, which I love, there's value in them. I don't think anybody, I, think, I don't think there's anything wrong with anybody who spent 20 or $30 buying um, Harry Potter. If that if that's what they like, because it got them to read, because it got them to read and that's going to be beneficial. And it also means that you get to, if you read books, you get to be part of a community of people of shared interest too. So there's a value in that as well. Um, And that's discounted heavily. Um, One of my favorite authors is uh, David Gemmel uh, writes high epic fantasies, passed away since then. Um, Elizabeth Hayden with her symphony of ages series. Very good. Uh, Brent Weeks, excellent books. Brian Sanderson with the Mistborn series. Tremendous. I love all of his work as well. Um, Robert Jordan, Wheel of Time, which now is an Amazon series. I think it's Amazon. Yeah, I think it's Amazon. It's not Hulu. It's uh, yeah, it's Amazon Uh, Foundation series, Isaac Asimov, some of my favorite stuff. And now that has a um, Apple TV series, which I think it's I think they did a good job with it, honestly. So so it's 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 understanding like what a practical use of your time is from the standpoint of um, optimizing for a better life and what is a better life for you? What is a better set of habits? What is a better set of skills? What is a better set of um, things that you can say, okay, well, this is how I'm going to blow off steam. This is how I'm going to relax, right? And for some people, that streaming or YouTube, believe it or not, even though you could call it work, you know, or the beginnings of a new career. I mean, that's, for me, it was an outlet and it was something I liked doing. And so I think that that makes sense. So, so when I think about those things, um, again, it's about all the long term benefits of how you choose to operate. And then that is literally, okay, you're you're doing hard work now and you're reaping the benefits long term and hopefully in perpetuity by making money that's separated from your time, using the excess of that money. To deploy and allocate capital and assets that secure your future and appreciate in value, or can cash flow for you if needed. If you further need to separate your time from the ability to support yourself financially, so um, those are my thoughts. And that is uh, today tonight's conversation on the passive income engine. And so with that. We'll end the audio version of the podcast, do the outro, and for those in the live YouTube audience, they will get to be part of about roughly, let's say, five minutes of Q&A. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Catch you on the next one. Has ended, but your creative journey continues. Visit create something awesome today.com and access all links and resources mentioned in today's show, all designed to help you create something awesome today.